Welcome back, creeps. Hey, uh, hola. Hola, creeps. <laughs> hola, creeps. <laughs> How do you say creeps in Spanish? I don't know. You're the one who speaks Spanish. Yeah, but I've never had to call anyone a creep in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Useful wow. life tips with weekly creep. <laughs> I've never heard of this word ever in my life. El creepo. Arrastrarse? No, that's not right. I think it means to actually creep, not a creep. Oh, as in like creeping yeah. along the floor? Yeah, exactly. Well, we can ask your mom when she gets back. What's another cinnamon for cinnamon? Cinnamon? <laughs> <laughs> What's a cinnamon? Cin- oh my God. Synonym? For creep. Synonym roll? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Weirdo? Uh, it looks like a bastard. Mm. Or a villain. I don't know if I agree with that. What a villain? Yeah, or a bastard. Like our creeps aren't aren't either of those things. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe we just know. changed the word. That's what yeah. it was Maybe supposed it's like to be. The way gay used to mean happy. Or the way bad used to, is now like she a bad bee. <laughs> you know. The times they are changing. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, our patron of the week this week is Keely D. Yeah. What up, Keely D? What's up, Keely? I heard you like mac and cheese. So do we. What? <laughs> I'm pretty sure this person likes mac and cheese. Oh. Who does Keely, reach out to us. Let us know if you like mac and cheese. <laughs> As always, we really appreciate that you're a member of our Patreon uh, team, I was about to say. Patreon people, you know who you are. Thank you. We love you very much. How was your week? Uh, it was good. It, dude, I it feels like no time has passed. Like because it feels like we just got done doing this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like how the fuck did we get here so fast? <laughs> I know, yeah. The weeks just like fly by. It's like, oh, we just published. Oh, it's time to record. Oh, God. Uh... Yeah. It's fun. But it never feels <laughs> that way when I'm playing Animal Crossing. The land where you can just disappear and do whatever you want. Where everything is always okay. Yeah. Always. <laughs> I look forward to watering my pumpkin patches. Yeah, I feel like you're uh, you're escaping a little too much there. <laughs> no, I've actually like stepped away enough to play another game, which I'm starting to regret because it's very confusing. And... I'm starting to play uh, Donkey Kong Country from Super Nintendo. Right on. Because those are free now. Thanks to Justin. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Justin bought us a coffee on, uh, I think it's, is it, is Kofi is the website? I think it's coffee, though. With the strict instruction that they'll say purchase online for the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. And so, yeah, thanks, Justin. I'm using it. All right. Well, my week was good. <laughs> awesome. Uh, my first week back in any sort of employment in over a year and a half. Yeah. It's interesting. Yep. It's fun. I have somewhere to go now <laughs> for a few hours every day or some days anyway. Yeah. A sense of urgency to go there as well. It's almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not quite. Yeah. Because I mean, technically you had and you could go anywhere. But now you have a sense of urgency to get there. Yeah. To a particular place on time yeah that's true yeah i have a key 
That makes me feel kind of important. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Love that. Love that for you. Yeah. It's like a a big gold key, too. Yeah. Just one. Yeah. That's how you know it's important. Do you feel like the mayor? A little bit. I wear it around (laughs) my neck. (laughs) All right. Without further ado. Yeah. Adieu. Basically, I'm going to get back into this story because I'm so excited to tell you. Everybody. Everybody. I am excited to tell. I will be, when I finish this. I'm going to be sending it to like a few other podcasters that I know don't listen to us because same as why I don't listen to them on the weekly basis because I don't want to copy all their shit. But I'm going to be like, you need to hear this story. Yeah. And enjoy it. Because it's just the best ghost story I think I've ever freaking heard. Put it in your ear. Stuff this in your ear holes. Okay. So if this is your first time listening to us, please do yourself a favor and go back one episode. Yeah. Because this is a part two. Do yourself a solid. Your future self will thank you. And your past self will be like, you see what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. You see why? Yeah. So we left off last week after Shane, who was the author of this book, uh, The Boy They Tried to Hide. Anyway, his friend, George, who was also the principal of the school where he works, gave him three newspaper articles published by a local newspaper in 1985. The parish priest at the time had approached the newspaper initially and had them publish an article asking for help finding a child believed to have been kidnapped by his father and possibly taken to Australia. Mm -hmm. The second article told us that the mother of the missing boy, Winifred Tobin, had unfortunately taken her own life. The third article claimed that after further investigation, police had come to the conclusion that the child was just a figment of the woman's imagination. But the facts in this little story arc were just a little too close to the story that young Gregory had been telling about his new friend, Thomas. Mm-hmm. We also learned that the parish priest who had gone to the newspaper in 1985 was still alive, living in a nursing home, but completely compass mentis. And also this story happened in 2013. The priest at this stage was 90 years old. So compass mentis means he's li- he's lucid. He's fully there. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. He's just old and tucked away, but yeah. mentally he's all there. Um, and there's a little catch up. Sorry if there's any spoilers. But like I said, go back one. Yeah, go back one. <laughs> so the final revelation, which came from these newspaper articles. Sorry, one last point. Was the grainy black and white picture of the small living room from Winifred's home. With the little game thingy. Yeah, which showed a, a specky. ZX Spectrum or Specky personal computer on the coffee table. Specky. Shane calls Orla, Gregory's mom, just to check in. Fucking love that name, by the way. Orla? Yeah. Yeah, but on here, because there's multiple ways of spelling it, like any fucking Irish name. But in this book, Orla is spelled O-R-L-A. So my computer kept changing it to Oral. So <laughs> anyway, it is a nice name. I've I know a few Orlas. Anyway, Shane calls Orla, Gregory's mom, to check in. This is a couple of days after she had heard what sounded like Gregory and another child talking in his room one night, only to find Gregory sitting in the middle of the floor with the window wide open. So that was the the hair raising moment in the last story for yeah. me, anyway, the last episode. Shane's solution at the time was Screw the window shut. Like, literally just bolt that bitch down. And according to Orla, this seemed to do the trick. Yeah. The family had a few 
uneventful days and Shane was back to thinking that this was all just a figment of young Gregory's imagination. Who would have thought a hammer would have been a solution to all your paranormal problems? I know, right? <laughs> a hammer and nails. <laughs> <laughs> so Shane is just back to thinking, all right, Gregory really tricked us all on this. Like he, he had us all hanging on, like, but it obviously was just an imaginary friend. Yeah. And the story is over. And at this point in the story, it really seems that things were coming together. Maybe the extra attention that Gregory was getting was doing the trick and he was gradually phasing Thomas out as an imaginary friend. Now, I probably mentioned this in the last one, but Shane used to split his time between working at the local school and doing some writing for the local newspaper. So one afternoon, while in the newspaper office, he asks a colleague who had grown up in this town about Winifred Tobin, the woman from the old newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. This man said, quote, Winnie wasn't from around here, and no one seems to know where she came from or what drew her to Garshai, the local town. She lived out in the old Dunshire Road, almost in the woods. The only reason people knew she was around at all was because she had to come into town now and again to get supplies. But even that was irregular because she bought in bulk. I saw her once or twice. She was a small woman, jet black hair, very pale skin. She looked like someone with a disability or mental illness. You know, shuffling walk, head always bent, never made eye contact, muttered when she spoke or if she spoke at all. But this colleague of Shane's provided a very different perspective of Winnie's story, or rather the town's reaction to her story. He revealed that her tragic death was suicide, which was thought anyway. The woman had given her story out as that she had fallen in love with a man named Thomas, but it was nothing more than a passionate affair. Not long after, he stormed out and disappeared for 10 years. She raised their child, who she named Thomas, after the father, and didn't hear from this man again until he supposedly came back to whisk her son away from her. Initially, people took this at face value and felt bad for the woman, but much like anything that gets brought into the public eye, people soon started asking questions. Questions such as, why was Thomas Jr. never enrolled in school? And why are there no photographs of Thomas? Not just, why are there no recent photographs, but the fact that Winnie had absolutely no photographs of her son at all just seemed a little bit strange. It was 1985, but cameras were still a regular thing. Like, you know, our family has a ton of photos going back years and years, you know, mm -hmm. black and whites and stuff. So soon people began doubting her son's existence. When her story initially came out, there was a handful of people that said like, oh yeah, I think I remember seeing Winnie walking in the woods with a kid, like at least once, but never close up. And then pretty soon, even these people started to doubt what they had seen. You know, oh, it was a little further away and was it really a kid or, you know, whatever. What if it was a raccoon in child's clothes? Again, there's no raccoons in Ireland. Oh, so, <laughs> have I already said that? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> You're like, I must reiterate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you dumb American. <laughs> there are no raccoons. <laughs> At least not that I know of. I'm pretty sure we're raccoon free. <laughs> raccoon free since 1863. Um... People also started to ask more questions about Thomas Sr. and how convenient it was that nobody had ever heard of him either. 
So it would appear that poor Winnie took her life after her story was pretty much rejected by the public and people had started to say that she was just this mad woman in the woods making up stories for attention. Not long after she took her life, however, one older woman who had lived a few miles from Winnie claimed to have seen Winnie's child, Thomas, and said that she had even had tea with him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not a raccoon. Definitely not a <laughs> raccoon, no. But again, this brought up like all sorts of rumors, but the main one being that Winifred had ultimately killed her own son, buried him out there in the woods somewhere, and then concocted a story to save herself. Or maybe she even believed her own made-up story. Who knows? The following day, after finding out this new information, Shane heads on over to the Finnegan's house just to check in. Orla is in a much better place. There's still been no talk of Thomas, and she thanks Shane for helping. Shane says these imaginary friends have a way of just disappearing, but it's still early days, so we, you know, need to give Gregory the attention that he's been receiving like it's obviously yeah. working he then goes out to the back garden to see what Gregory's up to and how he's feeling and I'll be reading from the book here I'll be doing this quite a lot in this in this episode in particular because um some of this stuff is just too dense and I have to quote from the book otherwise I just won't do it justice okay I'll allow it Gregory was just beyond the fence kneeling on the ground he had his back to me and didn't look up as I approached. How you doing, champ? I asked, stepping over the iron fence and walking across the soft, yielding earth to the boy. I'm okay, he said. I sat down next to him. He didn't have any toys and was staring into space, his hands resting on his knees. Your mum tells me things have gotten good lately. Well, they're not. Thomas is mad at me. Mm. Why? I told him, again, this is written the way the child would speak. I told him I can't go out at night no more. Yeah, I, I can see why that would bother him. Can't he come and play with you during the day like most kids do? He don't like the day so much. He says it makes him feel funny to be out in the day. So he won't come and visit you anymore. I didn't say that. He was just here. Was he? Where's he gone? He runned off when he heard you coming. Is he still around? Can you call him back? Gregory shook his head. He's scared of grown-ups. Says they're mean. I'm not mean. I was casting my eyes about the area as we spoke. I could see that there was a spot right in front of the boy that was squashed down and flattened, as if someone had been sitting there for a time. I absently laid my hand on it, thinking I might feel the warmth of a body, but it was cold to the touch. I told him that. He says you're just being nice now, but you'll turn nasty soon enough. Gregory tells Shane that Thomas gets very scared sometimes. And then Shane tells him that he used to work with children who dealt with all kinds of problems and he could help Thomas if he'd like that. Gregory tells him he'll pass on the message next time he sees him. Very seriously, it was Aww. young Gregory, yeah. And as Shane is walking away, back into the house to say goodbye to Orla, Gregory says... I asked him that thing that you said before. What thing? You said to ask him, what was the number one in the charts? What did he say? Power of Love by Jennifer Brush. Now, you might be familiar with the song 
Cause I'm your lady. Oh yeah. By Celine Dion. Yeah. Which was released in 1994. Okay. Well, it turns out the original was actually released in 1984 oh. by Jennifer Rush, not Brush, and it was titled The Power of Love. Rush became the first female artist ever to have a million selling single in the UK. Oh. It became the ninth best selling single of the 80s, and it just so happened to be number one in the UK charts in October of 1985. Wow. The local newspaper articles that George gave Shane stated that Winnie had reported her son Thomas missing on October 16th of the same year. Mm. That song had just gone number one on the 9th of October. Wow. So again. Yeah. Hairs on the back of my neck. I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> Shane also makes the point of saying that although it was 2013, he wasn't even sure if the Finnegans had Wi-Fi at that, at this point in the house. Yeah. Remember, because Orla's just a single mom with two young kids. They mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily even need it. Mm-hmm. This was just another strange fact in a story that was becoming undeniably spooky. Mm-hmm. Shane managed to get in touch with the nursing home where Father Malone was staying. Father Malone was the local parish priest back in the 80s. And he arranged to call out to him one evening. Father Malone was, as far as this book has given me the knowledge to know, he was the closest person to Winifred Tobin uh-huh. ever, by the sounds of things, at least at the time when she died. Mm-hmm. So Shane goes out to him and they sit down together in the priest's room and Shane just kind of spills everything, more or less saying, you know, I'm still thinking that it's just an imaginary friend. Yeah. But with all these strange synchronicities, it's just getting harder and harder to believe that. Yeah. And the priest asks him, quote, So are you genuinely suggesting this is a ghost or a changeling or something of that nature? To which Shane replied, ghost, ghost, (laughs) ghost. (laughs) Now, the reason why I put that specific quote in is because I just thought it was a very interesting choice of phrase. Choice of phrase, yeah, for this priest to use. Changelings, for those of you who don't know, are fairies would swap out Mm -hmm. regular human babies with their own babies. And then the the humans would raise a fairy baby or changeling thinking it was their own. But these fairy or changelings were evil. But I just thought it was an interesting little turn of phrase. And right now I'm going to read a pretty long passage from the book because, again, there was just no point in paraphrasing this. No, Father, I've been working on the idea that we could be dealing with a child who might in some way be connected with the Tobins. A kid so familiar with the events that destroyed Winifred that he has subsumed them and made them his story too. A cousin, a grandchild maybe. What do you think? Father Malone nodded thoughtfully. That would, of course, be dependent on the premise that Winifred's child was real and had survived. Is that possible? The old man stood. Let's walk in the gardens. A conversation like this will be much more bearable out of doors, wouldn't you say? We strolled down a cobbled path that led around a wide pond and then into the edge of a wooded area. 
These are the same woodlands as the ones where Winifred lived, Father Malone said to me. They stretch for miles. If you went into the trees just here and struck out east, you come to her old house eventually. I met that woman for the first time in 1984, just before Christmas. I hadn't even known there was a family living in that cottage on the Dunshire Road. I thought it was just a derelict shell. I happened to be going that way one evening to visit a sick parishioner when I saw a light on, so I decided to pay my respects. And I will just cut in here, the parish priest back then would literally call around to the families that he knew that would attend his church, like, usually. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they just throw themselves on the families and they'd be getting fed dinners and tea and cakes or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, obviously, they were checking in on their parishioners and whatever, but they were also getting well fed for it. But it was like an honor to have the priest in your house as well. Yeah. So that's not unusual. Just thought I'd throw that in there. I found this half-starved-looking, lank-haired, frightened little woman. That first visit, I only stayed for about a half an hour, but I got her to invite me back. And over a few weeks, I became, perhaps not her friend, but at least a warm acquaintance. So you would have known if she had a child. Oh, she told me on that very first night that she did. I stopped dead in the middle of the narrow path. Shadow and light played over us as the winter sun shone through the trees, making patterns on the stones and our faces. Did you ever meet him? Not as such, no. So she made him up then. I wouldn't be so quick to jump to that conclusion. The first evening I visited, there was pop music playing loudly in one of the bedrooms. She explained this by telling me that her son, Thomas, was in there playing on his home computer. She always told me he loved that machine. She maintained she had trouble getting him off it, but she insisted he go out and play outside at least once a day. Yet you never saw him. On several occasions, Winifred and I would be sitting outside in her little garden, which she kept quite well. It was just a grove among the trees, an area with a bit of grass growing, and she had a fallen log she used to sit on. She called it her bench. On more than one occasion, she would gesture out into the forest and say, There's wee Thomas out going for his walk. I'd look out in the direction she indicated, and as sure as I am standing here with you, I am almost positive I would see a boy. I even waved at him once, and I swear to you he waved back. And it wasn't just a trick of the light. You're certain there was a child there? No. You see, I'm not totally sure. Looking back, after all that has passed, I am full of doubt. She was so certain, I just never questioned her. A child's bike, an old but well-maintained bike, was always in the hallway. There was often fresh mud and leaves stuck to it, as if it had been recently taken out. And that computer was regularly plugged into the TV when I went in, with some weird game or another on the screen. She would always say she'd ask Thomas to go and do some study or to go out for air so the adults could talk. And she would say, there he is now going past the window. And I'd look and maybe see a shadow or a fleeting movement. And that would, in my head, be him, Mm -hmm. this child. But you never spoke to him. Just before she told me he had been taken by his father, I was on one of my visits. I was calling several times a week by then and 
as I was leaving, she called in through the door at the room where she said Thomas was doing his homework. The father's going now, Tommy. And a voice called back. Goodbye, father. A child's voice. I thought so at the time. The priest went on to say that he genuinely tried to track down the man Winifred had said was her son's father, but she didn't even know his second name. He also said that after she had taken her own life, which was a major sin back in those days, like it was really frowned upon, that he requested from the bishop to bury Winnie on hallowed ground so she could have a proper Catholic funeral. And honestly, this old man seems like a genuine nice old priest because when the bishop refused... Father Malone basically said, well, fuck you. (laughs) And he had her buried in the nice Christian graveyard with the rest of them. So that, again, that's a nice gesture. Yeah. Too little, too late, maybe, but still a nice thing to do. Now, like I said, Father Malone was 90 years old and Shane's visit really seemed to tire him out. Like just dredging up all these old memories and feelings. So Shane walked him back to his room, said goodbye. And as Shane was driving down the long driveway of the nursing home, he said... To my left, the trees cleared for a moment, creating a small patch of earth skirting the driveway on which a few scraps of grass grew. There, standing in the middle of this negative space, looking completely out of place, was a small boy. He was wearing an anorak that looked to be light brown in colour with a large hood. His blue jeans were scuffed and dirty, and he had dark hair cut in an old-fashioned, long, mop-top style. His eyes seemed impossibly large and dark and they followed me as I drove past. I slammed on the brakes and was out of the car and running back the way I had come almost before the Volkswagen stopped. I thundered into the clearing but there was no one there. I stood where the boy had been listening to the wind in the trees and the purr of a rock dove in the boughs above me. Had I seen a boy? Was he there at all? Or was I starting to go a little crazy myself? With all this strangeness. I had no idea, but I was sure I was being watched as I got back into the car. The feeling continued until I left the trees behind and got on the main road for home. And so I was telling Dulce before we started the recording, so this is pointless, I don't know why I'm saying this, but Shane actually included some of his own, um, so a transcript of his own therapy sessions from January 30th, 2013 in his book. And so right now I'm going to read a section of that. Doctor, did you really see a boy or do you think your mind was playing tricks? If you had asked me that an hour after the fact, I would have told you beyond any doubt that I saw him. And now? I don't know. I remember him so vividly, right down to the fact that one shoelace was undone. But then, you tell someone they're sleeping in a room where a ghost has appeared, And you tell them what other people in that room have experienced. And before too long, they'll swear blind that they experienced those things too. I've studied psychology. I know how suggestible people can be. But to me, the reason why I included that little bit is because that sounds an awful lot like the answer that the priest just gave Shane himself. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I, there was a boy. I'm almost sure. Yeah. And in my head, all like like my vision of Thomas up until this point now is the shape of a boy with TV static in it. Mm. It's like someone who's almost there. Yeah. Even if he had just seen a real flesh and blood child, maybe visiting his grandparents in the nursing home, 
this doubt was seeping in and he was questioning his own memory. Yeah. I feel like an awful lot of paranormal experiences, experiencers could probably relate to this. Like in general, like you see a hand come out of the fucking wall. 20 minutes later, I've seen a hand come out of the wall. Two years later, you're like, I mean, I thought, thought that's what I saw. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sometime later, like I said in the last episode, I don't have a strict timeline for this one. But within the next few days, anyway, Shane calls into the Finnegan household again just to check in and see how everyone is getting on. And when we last left them, Orla seemed to think that Thomas was gone. But young Gregory said that they had just made him angry because they couldn't hang out at night anymore. So when Shane gets there this time, Orla brings him straight up to Gregory's room and shows him that the window was smashed the night before. She had heard it happen and ran in to find Gregory sitting up in his bed, screaming and crying, a rock lying in the middle of his floor that had clearly been thrown from the outside. And she had just covered the broken window with a board and called the police in the morning. And the police came out, but but like, what can they do? Mm-hmm. They just suggested maybe it was local kids up to no good. And, you know, if it happens again, call us. But Shane decides... It's time to go old school. Good old fashioned stakeout. Ah. Yeah. I would like to make it very clear that he is still not convinced that this is a ghost. Yeah. Like in the slightest. He just will not accept that idea. So he's determined to catch the people who are terrorizing this little family. Yeah. And like, I don't know if I made it clear, but he said it in the book, the part that I read out, he is convinced that maybe this is like Thomas's fucking son. Yeah coming back and just playing up on his dad's old story or something, you know what I mean? Like, that's what he was saying, maybe Uh a grandchild or something. Somebody with an in-depth knowledge of this local legend that they'd be able to play this off as a big, gigantic, unorthodox prank. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he drops his car back to his house and has Orla bring him back over to the Finnegan's house So it just looks like any other normal night. Mm -hmm. It's only Orla's car out the front. And around 11 o'clock, he sneaks out to sit in the front seat. He puts Millie, the little greyhound, in the back. Because he doesn't give Millie much in terms of (laughs) what he thinks she can accomplish or do. Mm -hmm. But he does acknowledge the fact that she's a great alarm. So he sits her in the back seat and she just curls up and goes to sleep straight away. That's what my dad says about dogs. Yeah, yeah. Only the other day he was saying, if you're going to go camping, bring one of the dogs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Orla also had the house locked up too, just in case. But from where Shane is sitting in her car, he's hidden in complete shadow with a perfect view of Gregory's window. Orla had given him a flask of tea because Ireland. But he was trying not to drink too much because he didn't want to make noise by getting out of the car to go piss in the bushes. Yeah, go for a wee. Go for a a quick wee. But unfortunately, around 1am, he couldn't hold it in any longer and he had to go. Yeah. So he does his best. He sneaks out and goes behind a tree across the road. But as he was creeping back to the car, Millie started going berserk in the back of the car, yelping and whining dreadfully. And I spied a small figure moving slowly out of the trees beyond the Finnegan's house. I paused blinking in the shadows, trying to be sure I was really seeing what I seemed to be seeing. I was little more than 20 yards from my quarry, but I could not make out any features, 
All I saw was a small, person-shaped shadow that moved very smoothly despite the rough ground it was traversing. Even though I knew there was a fence to scale, the intruder seemed to be on one side of it one moment and the other side of it the next, without pausing. It reached the drain pipe, seemed to stop as if checking to see if anyone was about, and then began to steadily rise up it, moving hand over hand with no apparent effort. That was my cue. I broke cover and I sprinted across the ground, dragging the torch from my pocket and switching it on as I ran. Hey, hey you! I shouted. I reached the side of the house and shone the beam of the light on the figure which was now at the broken window and saw, for a brief instant, a wide-eyed, pale face peering down at me from the folds of a hooded coat. I had a moment of recognition. It was the boy I had seen in the clearing at the nursing home. Then he was gone. One moment he was there, the next he was simply not. I stood in the dark, blinking stupidly, gripping the cold base of the drain pipe as if it might somehow hold the answer. I paced up and down, shining the torch here and there, hoping to spot him making good his escape. I saw nothing. Millie had calmed down so I let her out, and then, using a key Orla had given me, I let myself into the house and went into Gregory's room. He was sleeping with his mother for the night. The board was still firmly in place and had not been tampered with at all. The child hadn't gotten inside, so where had he gone? Again, according to his therapy transcript, Shane said simply, He was there, and then he wasn't. It wasn't like he faded or went transparent. There just was no one at the top of the drainpipe anymore. Mm-hmm. So now, more than ever... Shane is 1000% convinced that this little boy who just scaled a completely smooth drain pipe walked through a fence and then disappeared into thin fucking air in front of his very eyes is a real kid whose parents just let him run wild in the woods at night. They need to catch him and have some serious words with him and his parents. This is still like his train of thought. (laughs) Yeah. So... The next morning, he's telling Orla what he saw. And, like, she is blown away, but still thinking logically, it's a little boy who's out there causing fucking ruckus, breaking windows at night, trying to steal kids. Yeah. And she says, Orla tells him that a group of travelers had set up camp not far from the house, but only in the last two weeks. This has been going on for much longer. So it's not them, but... You could at least go and have a chat with them like they're literally living in the woods mm-hmm. and see if they have seen this absolutely 100% real living boy. Mm-hmm. Now, Irish travelers, for anyone who doesn't know, are actually an indigenous group of nomadic people who have been a part of Irish society for centuries. I looked this up on the Irish Travelers Movement uh, website, which was really cool. Like they had lots of fun facts about travelers. And as a group, they basically have just stuck by their long-standing traditions and their way of life apparently i learned all this off this website they've been around for like about 500 years and uh, they basically broke off from i guess normal societal living around oliver cromwell's time when the english were like stealing all the irish land and they said well fuck is we'll just go our own way literally they packed up a load of caravans and horses and carts and just kept moving and they've been moving ever since 
again, according to that website, they currently have a population of between 25 and 30,000 in Ireland alone. But travellers experience a high level of prejudice and exclusion still to this day. And typically wherever they try to set up camp, and I mean that literally, like they are still a nomadic people. They still live out of caravans and mobile homes. And whenever or wherever they try to set up camp, it is not long before the locals and the police try to move them on. Which is not a nice way to live. But like any minority, they have their fair share of shit that they put up with. Mm -hmm. So when Shane drives out to this camp, he's met with hostility, naturally. But this particular group in the story had set up camp in the woods around five miles from the Finnegan household. Three mobile homes, three cars and a van parked in a rough circle with a small fire in the middle. And again, this is a slightly longer passage from the book. They watched my approach with unguarded suspicion. I counted 14 children of varying ages as I walked the short distance from where I had parked. Four older women and some teenage girls stood at the doors of the caravans. They looked tired and frightened. I saw no men. I wonder if you could help me, I said, trying to get a good look at each child to see if any of them resembled the one that I had encountered the previous night. What do you want? A swarthy, heavy-set woman asked. I'm not trying to move you on, I said. A friend of mine lives a few miles up the road and she's been having some trouble with damage being done to her house. Now, it's been happening long before you arrived, so I'm not suggesting that you have anything to do with it. I was just wondering, have you seen anything? Seen anything like what? A girl with straight black hair and feline green eyes asked. I don't know. Anything out of the ordinary. We don't see nothing, only what we wants to see, one of the older women said. She was dressed in a worn woolen cardigan and a tweed skirt, her long hair greasy and tied back in a loose ponytail. We keeps ourselves to ourselves. These disturbances are happening late at night. Have you heard any strange sounds, anyone moving about in the woods? We don't go into the woods at night, a boy of about twelve piped up. I don't blame you. I said, it can be quite dangerous. We can't help you, sir, the first woman cut in. I'm sorry for your friend's troubles, but we don't want any hassle. You can tell her we'll be moving on later today, so she need have no concerns about us. Why are you moving on? This is a bad place. Is it? Goodbye, sir, and good luck to you. When I got back to my car, the red-headed boy had beaten me to it, and he was peering into the back looking at Millie. I had left her on the back seat with a rug thrown over her. Is that your greyhound, mister? It is, and she's not for sale, and I do not raise her, and I do not take her coursing, I said, preempting the frequently asked questions I tend to get about my dog. What's her name? Millie. Can I pet her? I looked at him warily. I'll take her out for a moment, but that's all, okay? I have stuff to do, and I'm already late. I opened the door, and Millie surged out then suddenly cringed down on the ground, looking about her with great discomfort. This display of emotion was not like her, and I was shocked by it. What's wrong, girl? I asked. Our dogs don't like it here either, the red-haired boy said, stroking Millie gently. My ma says it's because this is a bad place, a dark place. We're moving as soon as me dad and me uncles get back. They have some trading to do in town, but when they get done with it, we're going. And why is it such a terrible spot? I asked. 
What's wrong with this place? He looked around him, as if checking to see that no one else was listening. I'm not meant to tell. My gran says that you country people won't, wouldn't understand. Country people is the term travellers use for any person, whether they're rurally based or not, who lives a settled, non-nomadic ni- lifestyle. Try me, I said. I've never seen Millie act like this. What's going on? If I tells you, you can't let me ma or me gran know, okay? They always says we has to keep the settled folk like you ignorant. At this point, it's sounding like the muggles with Harry Potter. Like. Yeah. It'll just be between me and you. All right, then. He looked quickly about again to be sure the coast was clear. Then, in a whisper, It's because of the ghost. I felt cold fingers run down my spine. A real ghost in the woods. He nodded, his eyes wide, his expression solemn. What kind of ghost? A boy. He lives around here, I think. You see him through the trees. Sometimes he comes so close to our camp, I think he's going to walk right in and sit down next to us. Have you seen him? He nodded. We all seen him. My ma said he was just curious about us and he'd go away when he saw we was good people, but he keeps coming back. My grand did prayers and stuff to banish him, but they didn't work. What does he look like? Just like a boy. How do you know he's a ghost and not just some kid then? I thought he was a kid when I first seen him. It was one evening last week after we'd had dinner. I was playing with me football and I looked up and he was watching me from way off in the trees. I called him to come over but he waved for me to go to him. When I got to where he was standing, he wasn't there no more. He'd gone further away and every time I went after him, he'd move again. Then I knowed he was leading me deeper and deeper into the trees. I runned home and told me ma and that was when she told me about him. She said he was a ghost and never to follow him again. He started coming around all the time then. He has everyone right upset. That's why we're moving. Do you know who he is? My mum said he was killed and buried in the woods so now he can't leave. Do any of your people know how to get rid of ghosts like him? No, my gran tried, like I told you, but he didn't go. I opened the door and Millie scampered back in. He told my little brother his name is Thomas, the kid said. Did he? I asked, feeling genuinely scared for the first time since all this had started. Yeah, my brother was in bed one night and he waked up and seen his face at the window. My brother was real scared and he told him to go away. The ghost tried to get him to go out and play, but my brother wouldn't go though. He knowed if he did, he'd never be able to come back. Did Thomas say anything else? He says he's lonely, that he's not got any friends. That's what he wants, I think, a friend. He wants someone to play with, real bad. That one shook me. Like Wait, so I forgot to ask you what... I forgot to ask you for clarification because I just wanted to hear what happened next. Okay. But he, what did the boy say that he said that he wanted, that the nomads wanted to keep the country folk ignorant? Yeah. So I now I've never, I've met a handful of travelers in my time and I've never been called a country folk or country no, person. That's not the part that I'm wanting to focus on, but. Yeah. Just keep them ignorant because travelers have their um, beliefs and they feel like if they share them with us. We'll just look down on them and tell them that they're silly. 
okay. That's the impression I got. Now, maybe oh, I'm wrong, okay. but I think that was the... If you're a traveler and you're listening. Oh, if we have ar- any traveler listen- listeners... Let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Let us country folk know. Yeah. <laughs> because honestly, I would love, love, love to get a whole buckload of traveler ghost stories, like, or just any of their old stories. I'd say they're great. That repetition that you just did with the word love reminded me of that time. Remember, we used to, I think we used to use a software. Oh, it was this one. Or it was this it was one. just before I cleaned up the computer, yeah. Yeah, and it would do that every so often. It would have to stop until the computer. I was terrifying. We'd it be in the middle of a ghost story. And be like, love, 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 love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, brought me back. <laughs> but, again, this is one of those stories where I feel like I'm like pacing through the whole thing, but... There's just so much, and I, this is genuinely, I think this is my favorite story I've ever heard. I just want to say, kids like this that are, like, in the know, like, very pensive, like this kid, thoughtful. Oh, yeah. Love kids like that. Like this little traveler boy? Yeah. Yeah. But, like, let's just break it down a little bit, right? Can you imagine, say you're on vacation, or you're living in your mobile home, whatever, the smaller caravans, like, say, the Airstream for the Americans. Mm-hmm. Like, a grown-ass man could probably stare in your window as you're going to sleep, right? Oh, if you're driving like a Girth Brooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, That's Dulce's name for, like, Airstream and Winnebago's and stuff. Because they always have, like, Stream of the Salmon. Or, like, dumb names. (laughs) Yeah, like, Lone Wolf. Yeah, yeah. They all have, like, those names on them. (laughs) But can you imagine the waking up? Because I have slept slept in these mobile homes, like in mm-hmm. holiday parks and stuff. Can you imagine just waking up and seeing that face That's looking in your window? Man. No way. And it's not even like you're in a regular size room. Mm-hmm. You can run to the corner. You can run out the door. Then in a van, where the fuck are you going to run? Exactly. No way. I was sitting where you're sitting when I read this the first time. And <laughs> genuine, like it does take a lot to actually freak me out and scare me. Mm-hmm. That one got me. Yeah. That one really fucking got me. Like that was <laughs> probably one of the first times I felt tears in my eyes with just how fucking scary that was. Okay, that's so that is a thing because when I get really scared, I get tears in my eyes yeah, as well. I didn't know it was a thing. Yeah. I thought but anyway. <laughs> actually, real quick, while we're being distracted. So I started my new job or whatever, and I've been meeting like, oh. lots of new people. <laughs> yeah. And uh Sometimes I forget that not everybody's a fucking creep. So I was just trying to make conversation because it was just me and this girl that I had never met before. And I was saying, oh, I'm really excited about this story that I'm, that we're covering. And I literally gave her the bare bones. I was like, oh, it's this social worker and, you know, this kid and has like an imaginary friend, keeps coming to him at night. And like, that's all I told her. And straight away, she was about to start crying. She was like, okay, stop. But in, <laughs> to add to it, the place has problems with their lights. Uh-huh. And just as I had said that, the lights started flickering. <laughs> Poor girl. To make it even worse. <laughs> she had to go down and check the women's. Because uh, oh. obviously I couldn't check the women's um, like toilets and stuff. Yeah. But whatever is wrong, when you go to use the hand dryer, they fix it apparently. But when you go to use the hand dryer, it shuts off all the lights. In the men's, it was only happening for a second and they would come back on. But in the ladies, it would go pitch dark. Damn. So she did it. And when it came back on, there was somebody in the cubicle had come out. (laughs) 
<laughs> and when the light came on, she just saw this woman. Oh, in the my God. <laughs> this poor girl. Did she scream? I don't know, but she was shook. <laughs> <laughs> I would have fucking screamed. Yeah, and like, I think I left before her or something. <laughs> Because when the other girl came in earlier today, she was still laughing about it. <laughs> oh, she was laughing at herself. No, no, no. This was another girl. That who was, was laughing there. about it. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> it was just bad timing. <laughs> um. with that fucking weirdo again no she's like i guess i gotta pop in there now because i just shit my pants yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah poor girl poor girl <sighs> right anyway back to the story so a few days after this fucking terrifying encounter shane gets an unexpected visitor at the newspaper office like i said he worked part-time at the local newspaper and in walks Father Malone, randomly, and he said, I owe you an apology, Shane, for how he had behaved when they first spoke. He wasn't as truthful as he could have been. He said, Winifred was a very disturbed woman. She confided in me on more than one occasion that she had bouts of severe melancholia, which is what they fucking call depression, depression before it was, yeah. yeah, back when it was still... Um, like frowned upon to have feelings and emotions during these bouts of melancholia she thought about even went so far as to plan killing her son and then herself now I managed to talk her out of it point out all the positive things that she had in her life but in truth she had very little to live for she had it in her head that there was something wrong with the boy she said he had his father's evil in him that he was bad she felt he was always watching her. She talked about him having accusatory eyes. If she was depressed, you should have persuaded her to see a doctor. I know that now. Things were different then. Mental illness was not as well understood. Winifred was already dealing with the stigma of being an unmarried mother. I didn't want to load another taboo on her shoulders. I feared it would be too much to bear. I arrived at the house one afternoon and no one was home. I waited for a while and saw her coming out of the woods. She loved to walk among the trees, so I wasn't surprised. But then I saw there was something wrong. She seemed to be staggering, unsteady. I went to meet her, and saw she had blood on her hands, on her blouse. She told me she had fallen and cut herself while she was out walking. We went inside and she cleaned herself up. The following day, she told me the boy was gone, that his father had taken him. You told me before that you believed her. I wanted to, but a part of me suspected right from that moment that she had done something terrible. When she ended her life, I even went to the police and told them what I thought. They didn't seem to care. They were convinced Thomas was a figment of a mad woman's imagination, but I knew different. You're sure he was real? I am. And you believe she killed him? God help me, I do, yes. That was finally it. There was no more Shane could do to deny Thomas's existence as a spirit, a ghost, an entity, whatever way you wanted to put it. This man, Father Malone, 
was the only one who could have given him this information and it was time to accept the unacceptable. That poor boy, Father Malone said, his voice cracking with misery. He never even had a funeral. I should have gone out there and prayed for his soul, but I was too afraid. You might get your chance yet, Shane said. I don't think we've heard the last of Thomas Tobin. So, much like Shane was in denial of Thomas's existence, so was this priest in denial about the boy's murder in the first place. Both men got the answers to their questions, but neither of them are happy with the outcome. Quote, A mother and a little boy died and the world looked away. That was a quote from Shane's doctor, Shane's mm-hmm. therapist. Not long after this, after dealing with another sleepless night due to his fucking mental personal life at the time, <laughs> um, like I said, this book kind of just summed up this three or four months of Shane's life mm-hmm. and there was just an awful lot of business going on that I won't go into, but he was rushing home to get changed and go to work for which he was already late when he gets a call from Orla, Gregory's mom. Hey Orla, he's gone. She sounded on the verge of breaking. Her voice had that edge to it. Slow down, tell me what happened. He came from I saw the boy, Thomas, this time. He was in the house, standing in the kitchen. We were eating breakfast and I left the back door open to bring some rubbish out to the bins. I came back and he was there, holding Gregory by the hand. I screamed and went to grab him, but they ran right past me like I wasn't there. I tried to catch them. I don't know how they moved so fast. Do you know where they went? Into the woods, where they always go. Okay, I'm on my way. Have you called the police? What would I tell them? That he went out to play? He's only gone an hour or so. I'm scared, Shane. That boy looked so strange. Shane hangs up, calls George, the principal of the school, and tells him what's going on. And George is understandably, like, fucking flabbergasted. He's shocked. And he says, I have a school to run. Like, I'm a fucking principal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, and also, you're supposed to be here too, at your workplace, the school, Mm -hmm. where you're employed. But Shane just says, no, there's there's something fucked up going on here. So he just tells George, look, I need your help. You know these woods like the back of your hand. And I need you. I need to go find Gregory, whether you're helping or not. Shane continues back to his own house, loads Millie into the car before rushing over to the Finnegan's. Like I said before, he didn't have much faith in Millie, but he felt he needed any kind of help he could get. When he pulls up to the Finnegan's house, He finds George, all kitted out, ready to go hiking. I guess he had had a minute to let this sink in. Good man. I mean, he's literally telling him, like, there's a fucking missing child. There's a ghost boy stealing children (laughs) in the woods. (laughs) You're a principal of a school with children in it. You should care about this. George says, simply, I'd never be able to live with myself if anything happened to the boy. Mm. They grabbed one of Gregory's old socks to give to Millie or to give Millie his scent and George finds tracks heading north toward the mountains. That's cute. The dog's just walking around with one sock on. Well, I don't know if she's literally fucking wearing it. Like she sniffed it to get the scent. Oh, she just smelled it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, somebody put a sock on Millie. We gotta go. (laughs) Any sock will do. (laughs) 
Orla did want to go, naturally, like she's the boy's mother, but they managed to convince her to stay at the house just in case he came back. And after almost an hour, more or less running through the woods, they finally come across evidence that they're at least on the right track. George quite snappily tells Shane, after Shane questions him about the tracks, he's like, well, I'm not a fucking Indian tracker. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? They're doing their best coming out here. They found footprints heading north and they followed that for an hour. And then, quote, in a patch of damp earth beside a small stream, we could clearly see two distinct sets of tracks, one slightly bigger than the other. At this point, even Millie seemed to know what they were up to, and she started urging them down the path. Finally, around midday, this is around two or three hours of flat out hiking through woods, they reached the part of the woods that Shane was actually familiar with, close by the sea. Millie stops dead in her tracks, looking into this patch of undergrowth. And when George looked to see what she was staring at, he finds a damp child's glove. When he pulls it out, Millie gives a little bark and starts whining. And Shane said, that means either it belongs to Gregory or someone recently soaked it in beef gravy. (laughs) (laughs) They moved on at their fast pace. And after only about 50 yards, Shane realized that Millie wasn't moving this time. She was still stood exactly where they had found the glove, as if she was waiting for someone. Suddenly, they heard a harrowing cry echoing through the trees as though someone or something was in terrible pain. They both heard it, and so did Millie. And straight away, they tried rationalizing, maybe it's a fox or a cat, but it's the middle of the day. And then they heard it again, and George said, If I didn't know any better... I'd say that sounded like a very young child. Shane agreed. It sounded like a baby crying in the woods. Mm -hmm. But this just didn't make any sense. Like the two boys that they're chasing after are like seven or eight years old and 10 years old. Mm -hmm. But then they heard it again. Closer and just ahead of them this time. Terrified, the two men ran on. And as they crested a low hill, they came across the very same cabin from before remember at the start of the story Shane and George went out walking one day sat down at this odd little cabin in the middle of the woods to have their picnic Mm -hmm. and Shane could have sworn that he heard a baby crying oh okay that was about four or five months before this okay and George just brushed it off Mm -hmm. he said ah people are always talking about these woods but this time as they come across that very same cabin there was young Gregory He was sitting with his back against the wall of the old cabin, fast asleep. Shane was totally disorientated. He felt like the way they had come shouldn't have led them here. Mm -hmm. But regardless, he went straight to Gregory, knelt down beside him and woke him up. And this next bit that I'm about to read is so fucking insane. So just bear with me while while I read it. Gregory wakes up. Where's Thomas? He asks. I don't know, Greg. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I want to go home now. Millie scampered up, first licking Gregory on the face and then tugging at my sleeve with her teeth. Shane, we have company, George said. The small figure of a child was standing, watching us from among the trees. He was dressed in the same anorak and jeans he had worn before the hood drawn up and only the slightest hint of pale face visible in its shadow. 
Will you take Gregory and start walking back? I said. What are you going to do? George asked. I'm going to try and talk to him. I can't just leave a child alone in the woods. The cry sounded again. This time it was deafeningly loud. We don't know what we're seeing is a child, George said. I looked again. The figure seemed closer. I can't take that chance. I don't like this, Shane. I'm frightened. And I think we all, you, me, Gregory and Millie, need to leave this place and get back to civilization. I can't, I said. The boy was now almost at the edge of the clearing. Neither of us had seen him move. And I could make out huge black eyes in a deathly white visage. Thomas, I said loudly, my heart pounding in my chest. I was absolutely terrified, but a kind of firewall had come down and I was working on autopilot. Is there someone we can call? Anyone I can get to come and take you home? The wailing became a cacophony, drowning out all other sounds. Gregory covered his ears and I saw George wince. I stood up. I'm coming over, Thomas. I shouted over the ruckus. I think it's time we had a chat, you and I. I made first one step, then another. It felt as if I were wading through treacle, each motion a huge effort. The noise was deafening, a furious caterwauling that seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere. I was so close to the boy now I might have reached out and touched him. I got a powerful smell of earth and could see cobwebs on the sleeves of his coat and mildew and moss on the knees of his trousers. I'm not sure what happened next. I saw a look of bewilderment spread across the spectral face and then it looked as if something had caught Thomas by the waist with tremendous force and in a flurry of motion he shot back through the trees like a cartoon figure and fast forward. In a second he was gone, the screeching cries dwindling to nothing as the tiny form vanished into the forest. They got Gregory back to his house, safe and sound. And a few days later, Shane, Father Malone, Orla, George, Angus and Gregory walked out into the woods not far from the Finnegan's house. Millie stayed in the Finnegan's back garden. She had had enough of the woods. <laughs> the old priest intoned the words of a blessing, asking for the soul of Thomas Tobin to be put to rest and accepted into the great beyond. I thought Father Malone deserved closure as much as anyone. When he had completed his incantations, Gregory and Angus produced candles from their pockets and Orla lit them with a plastic lighter. You needs to go now, Thomas. Gregory said, I liked being your friend, but I think you needs to go and be with your mam. You'll be happier with her. The two boys walked a little ways into the woods and stuck their candles into the earth, then came back and joined us. We watched the flames until a gust of wind blew them both out. May his soul and the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace, Father Malone said. Amen, we all chorused, including myself, even though I wasn't religious. In the distance, almost beyond our eyeline, I thought I saw a glimmer of movement. I looked at Gregory and he was smiling. I think he saw it too. Let's go back to the house and have some tea and those cakes Father Malone brought us, Orla said. We had a wonderful party. <laughs> and as far as I know, nobody ever heard from little Thomas ever again. But I can't help going back to Father Malone's question. Are you genuinely suggesting this is a ghost 
or a changeling or something of that nature. Because from the small amount of information that we have about Thomas, which is all from this book, that's all I have to go on. Even when he was alive, he was as much of a ghost as he was in this story. Maybe even more so. Mm -hmm. Like even going back to the 80s and all these people saying, oh, I, I saw him with his mom walking in the woods. Mm-hmm. maybe i maybe i saw him maybe, oh maybe not like so like this whole time like i said like i was picturing this child shape full of tv static yeah and even by the end that's that's all i have in my mind like i can't see any more than that and in particular just there when they kind of say their goodbyes in the woods mm-hmm. and shane looks out and he's like think i see something moving Mm -hmm. and gregory seems to think that he sees something as well you know Mm -hmm. there's just i don't know i think there's something more than just this little boy ghost that whole scene like that he just described fair enough yeah it literally it sounds like it could be the end of a like a horror movie or whatever Mm mm-hmm but it's leading me to think that there's a lot more to this than just one little boy ghost. You know what I mean? I agree. This little boy That's ghost. That's what it sounds like. Maybe he was, maybe the death of this little boy was what the forest needed to project that energy. Yeah. You know, or maybe who fucking knows? Like, but there you go. There's the story of Thomas Tobin. That's wild. And little Gregory. Yeah. Definitely my favorite ghost story to date (laughs) it is a good one Uh, it leaves you with a lot of questions even though there's so much detail yeah i think it's interesting how those kinds of stories uh just leave you with do the opposite of of what it intends to do i mean it does the opposite of what you think a well a well detailed story would make you want to do yeah you would think, okay, let's sit down and explain this to me word for word what happened and so I can get it clear. But then at the end you're going, but no. <laughs> but yeah. So you can understand where Shane's logical background came into play and he denied that he even wanted to think of this thing as a ghost or an entity mm-hmm. right up until it was, they had no fucking choice but to yeah. accept that, okay, this is not a regular human child, mm-hmm. whatever it is we need to do something different than call the police, call her parents or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, um, and you know what I think is interesting though? I- I'm wondering how the prayers and efforts of banishment from the, the grandma. Community. Yeah. How were they were any different than what the the father did? Because they both essentially did the same thing, but for whatever reason, this time or supposedly allegedly this seemed to work so that thomas was never heard from again yeah so and i'm hoping that we'll be able to find out more about this but for me it ties it in a very nice neat little circle that we don't always get from these stories but the fact that father malone dealt with thomas's mother 30 years prior to all this happening Mm mm-hmm and then it was him able to say the, these words. It was like a closure for Father Malone because he felt like that he had 
not done right by this family and he hadn't in fairness he thought he was doing the right thing back in 1980 something Mm -hmm. but he had let them down Mm -hmm. the boy had died and the mother had died Shane was trying to protect this Gregory kid and Gregory ultimately wanted his new terrifying friend to go back to his mammy and be happy so he had all these three people all got closure and Orla as well Mm -hmm. you know so maybe that had something to do with maybe they were genuine in their it wasn't just a fear in this kind of closing ceremony mm-hmm. whereas maybe the travelers were doing it out of fear mm-hmm. because they didn't have that connection for them thomas was just this fucking face in the window mm-hmm. which like look at the end of the day as nice as a story well obviously it has horrible bits in it but like as lovely as it is with gregory and thomas having a nice time and stuff thomas was fucking terrifying Mm-hmm. black eyes pale white skin mm-hmm. scaling the side of a fucking house in the middle of the night walking through fences no but see we what we assume the what we assume to be true with ghosts is that they'll show you what they want you to see yeah but other people see things differently yeah well i've said this before see, like the more i talk the more I look into stories like this, the less I'm inclined to believe in this is a demon. This is a ghost. This is a poltergeist. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and in particular, because of the, the Pontefract poltergeist case Mm -hmm. that led me to think, well, who fucking knows? Like, again, like that, the more information I get, the more confused I am. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think these things that like, as far as we know, don't follow the rules uh, that we understand as we understand them about science and physics and, you know, our laws of physics. They don't follow those rules. They follow another set of rules. So I, th- I feel like it stands to reason that they're able to manipulate anything that they, that they can manipulate. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They can project and alter, alter results, like- our reality. Yeah. Because our reality is almost like so basic to them. You know what I'm saying? It's like the ABCs of physics, whereas they're like functioning on a completely elevated level. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like he probably wouldn't scare uh, Gregory because I'm pretty sure Gregory is he's a normal kid. He gets terrified of random shit like uh oh so maybe he didn't see that's what i'm saying he didn't see what shane and george and all them saw because they saw him how his his true form was yeah and then the little traveler kid yeah (laughs) well yeah and then the traveler boy saw him initially just as a regular little boy yeah but then after his mommy told him no that's dangerous don't go with him yeah. Then maybe their vision of him was altered. Mm-hmm. Like they started seeing him for what he really was. Maybe, you know? maybe. Um, Who fucking knows? And what a- I what I think is interesting is that one detail that you mentioned is that he got pulled back into the forest. So yeah. was is is this something that the forest like the an energy that the forest has that sort of like is a vacuum for. Um, tragedies or could this be the evil that res- that was residing in the mother that led her to kill her own kid because to me when you kill your own kid like that 
Like there's got to be like your soul. There's a part of your soul that's broken or or something shatters after you do something like that, after you murder someone, you know, whether if it's a kid or another human being. But was that crying just a sign that she's there still? I literally we can ask all these questions. I have no fucking idea. I know. I know. No, 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 I, I know, know you don't have the answers, <laughs> but I'm just I know what you're gathering saying. I know. these rhetoric. I'm just posing these rhetoric questions so that we can start thinking about them and, and maybe like have a conversation or maybe our listeners can um, shed some light on it for us. Not so much that, but start thinking about those things, sort of opening up to. Yeah, it's those not just ifs. a black and white. Right. This is a ghost. This this story and the details have so many layers and and dimensions to it. Yeah. So enough chit chat. Uh, let's get into a fucking amazing interview. Well, who has the answers to all the questions and the assumptions and whatnot that we were just vocalizing right now? Yeah. Well, what I was gonna say was, boy, do we have a surprise for you. Oh. <laughs> I like mine better. <laughs> Me too. We're gonna keep this whole thing in. Um That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> so right when I started reading this book, I told Ulse, this is too good. And I didn't believe it. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna message this guy. I'm gonna do it. Yeah. And then I did. And it turns out Shane is a delight. He's like the nicest fucking guy. And he's like, yeah, I'll come on your show. I just released another book. What, this is number 19, he said? Yeah, 19. He's like fucking number one bestseller and all this. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, I don't know how to respond now. Yeah. <laughs> so we just had the best interview. So this is a super long episode. Hope you guys all enjoy. And I know that interviews aren't everybody's favorites, but... You absolutely have to fucking listen to this i'm not even joking here like you have to listen to it listener listener just listen you have to listen to it <laughs> i'm so serious no seriously it's it's enjoyable shane was a delight um he kept it i mean he's he's just so engaging you yeah know? like I, I, I as we finished i said to dulce he just did the interview for us that was the best thing ever <laughs> But as well, he gave us exclusive information yeah. on the boy they tried to hide, which is the book that Thomas and Gregory's story came from. Yeah. And we had, uh, as you probably just heard, like we had some time to digest. Well, I had some time to digest all the information that Adam gave me. And so I thought it was like the best opportunity to just sort of ask the questions that I was left with at the end of it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it really answered so much. It really did, yeah. So, with that said, I'm going to put the interview right here. I'm just going to hit record now before I forget. Perfect, yeah. Perfect. Uh, so, before we start, and anyway, first of all, I'm in love with that book. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I'm delighted. Thank you so much. I briefly told you the other day, I had heard you first on that spooked podcast a few years yes. ago and so when i reached out this is dulce by the way and oh. i'm adam yeah <laughs> dulce, dulce is it yes. yeah yeah uh, lovely to meet you good to meet you shane 
but yeah when i reached out on our podcast a few weeks back saying like i basically described the story and i must add like at least six or seven people like within the first day get back to me saying it's this one you need to go check it out really that's cool yeah so i was delighted when i actually got the book and realized there was so much more detail to it yeah there's a there's a lot there's a lot in it all right yeah there's a lot in it yeah and then that's why because i felt like first of all i didn't realize that you had a number one book in the charts right now when i messaged you yeah (laughs) i was like hang on is this even real because there was so much in it that i was like hold the fucking phone like this is insane you know Um, It's, it's one of those situations um uh, it's one of those situations where um, I, I really tossed around the idea of whether I should write it or not at all. Um, it was one of those one of those stories that I kind of really wanted to tell, um, but was in two minds as to whether anybody would sort of accept it or not. Um, and I suppose when I did start writing it, I, I wanted to present the idea that when you're doing this kind of work, you kind of almost enter into the world of the child, the the children that you're working with. Kids accept things that adults don't. They have a perception and they accept elements of the world around them that we've kind of, it's been, that that has been conditioned out of us as adults, okay? I I found, in, in, in the time that I've been working with kids, I've encountered quote unquote paranormal stuff. Um, probably five or six times um, in situations where I really have wondered, did I actually see that? Did that actually happen? And I've written about this quite a bit in my books. It's actually crossed over quite a bit into what I refer to as my nonfiction books. Um, but I, I do actually talk about this quite a bit because children just accept it. Children are, are very open to the fact that there are aspects of the world that don't always make a lot of sense and that we don't really understand, but they just accept that they're there. Because kids live in a world where we as adults encourage them to believe in magic. Then they reach a certain point and it's okay. All right, you've got hair spreading in places now. You're not allowed to believe in that anymore, you know? Uh, but up to that point, we're kind of, we want them to. Do you know what I mean? I was devastated when my daughter stopped believing in Santa Claus. Um, and I kind of almost wanted her to play along with it for ages. But as, as adults, we, we don't. So when I started writing the book, I... I tossed around the, you know, how far do I go with this? But eventually I just decided to hell with it. I'm just going to put it all in there. I'm going to, I'm going to write about what I experienced or what I believe I experienced, what this family that I was working with experienced and to hell with it. I'm just going to put it out there. And to my great delight, it's been a huge success. And it, it's um, the Spooked podcast happened and it, it became one of their biggest downloads, I think, in the history of the show. And it's been optioned for for film and is being turned into a movie as we speak. So, uh, oh. yeah, so uh, I'm really excited. Like it, the story, people wanted to hear the story. People really responded to uh, that that family and that little boy and um, the remarkable things that happened to them. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, uh, amazing. Like, I'm so happy that it's being turned into a movie. Yeah. Because as I was reading it, again, I didn't realize the depth of the story until I actually read the book but as I was reading I was like this would make the best like see particularly that scene at the end of the book mm-hmm. would just be unbelievable to go and and watch it but um 
what was I going to say? Now my my question was just flowing out of my head. So just real quick about the movie: Are you going to be able to make like I guess creative decisions, or just kind of like be I guess giving advice to like the director? <laughs> let me tell you, let- I mean, it's been an unusual experience, okay? The movie has been in development. Um, it actually got optioned really quickly after the Spook podcast came out because it was kind of a, a very big success. And there was three or four tentative parties interested. And I went a little bit of the way down the road with one and then it didn't happen. And then would you believe, and this is completely true, and I thank the Lord, somebody was actually paying attention to me and looking out for me, Weinstein's people. Um, wandered onto the scene. As somebody who's involved in child protection and social care, I'm so glad I decided not to go with Weinstein um, (laughs) as an option. Uh, But now it's with a company called Rumble Films who made Drive with Ryan Gosling and Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. They're that company that made those movies. So they're very, very serious, very artistically, uh, with great artistic integrity. have I had an awful lot of say? We've certainly batted around ideas. Um, okay. I've seen early drafts of the script. They've been very respectful. Do I think if I decided in the morning, oh, I really don't like that. I want you to change this completely. I want you to stick rigidly to my version of the story. Do I think that they would say, oh, yes, Shane, absolutely. We're going to do that. No, I don't. They would tell me to <laughs> fuck off. Uh, but they, they've been quite nice and they've pretended to listen. And oh. uh, the... Um, <laughs> If I'm if I'm honest, I mean the last draft of the script that I saw, the story is largely intact. Um, okay. I kind of understand when I when, when my first book came out, When's This Child, which did again is got like a year in the life working in in child protection in Ireland. Um, it went to number one on the bestseller lists, and there was an awful lot of interest in turning that into a TV show. And I was really precious about it. I was kind of there. I, I had a meeting with BBC Northern Ireland. And I sat there and they told me what their vision for the, the, the series was. And I was kind of like, well, guys, you know, look, you're, you're, you're changing, you know, my story here. And I want to see certain things and I need to, the whole thing needs to kind of keep in the shape as I've laid it out. And I really don't think we can do business if you're not prepared to be absolutely rigidly stuck to my text. So, of course, they kind of said, oh, look, we'll get back to you. And they never did. So um, my thing now is, you know, look, let's just get the story out there and get it told. And there have been some tweaks and changes, but generally it's it's close enough to it's close enough to the to the story as as I laid it out. that I'm I'm quite happy. Um, Elmore Leonard has a great thing about when your book gets adapted into film. He always says that what happens is that the filmmaker and the writer should meet each on either side of a very, very large fence. (laughs) And the writer should throw their book over the fence to the filmmaker. The filmmaker should throw over a big bag of money and then they should just walk in separate directions and never see each other again until the premiere. And there's some truth in that, you know, if that could happen, I'd be quite happy. Well, to be fair, I know like from reading different interviews with like Stephen King in particular, uh, we're big King fans, but he has done so much work with like different books going to TV and and movies that along the way there has been so many failed attempts like probably all of his books would be on the big screen if it hadn't have been for like that arguments and stuff oh absolutely absolutely i i agree totally and i mean if if you look at i mean a writer i don't know if you're into comic books but a writer like alan moore um he's the guy who did um watchmen and v for vendetta league of extraordinary gentlemen he just refuses to have his name even attached to any of the film 
adaptations <laughs> of his work anymore and actually famously won't even take the money he just doesn't want to have anything else oh to wow. Do with it. wow he just refuses um I don't have that level of integrity. You know, you want to give me money, I'm going to take it. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, me too. I take a hand as well. Um, so real quick, uh, because basically what I did was I just spewed all of your book basically on our podcast. I split it in two. I had a listen. You, you did a really good job. Oh, thank oh, you. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, like we just try to relay stories as true to the original as we can. Um Typically, we would have different sources, but because this is the main source um, and we tried to give our own opinion. So on the first half, I was asking people, you know, what did you think, blah, blah, blah. And to be honest, one of the, the biggest things that stuck with me was one of our listeners in particular said that he was he had so much emotion for Gregory. Now, mm -hmm. I, I thought like I was just quoting from the book, but this guy in particular seemed to pick up on just how vulnerable he was, um, yeah. you know, lonely child in the woods. And I know, like, over here, obviously, I know that childcare is a big thing. But when I was at home, uh, I knew social workers, like, first-handedly. And just how much of a drain it can be on a human to, to oh, accept yeah. all that. So, basically, what I'm trying to say is, when you took that to the therapist that you included in your um, in the book, like... I felt I, I felt I had to include those sections that, uh, you know, because that was a big part. I mean, I, I did have to kind of recover to an extent from yeah. the stories that I recount in that book, not just the one with Thomas and Gregory, but I mean, the one with Rex, you know, Rex Gifford, this um, serial sex offender who gets out of jail and starts targeting a friend of mine and all of that's going on at the same time that this is happening. So that was a particularly traumatic period of my life that did send me scarpering for a therapist. Uh, and when you're doing this type of work, the, the, the problem with, I think, particularly what I refer to as kind of the frontline workers. So you've got, you know, police officers, nurses, social workers, firemen, you know, these people who are on the front line. There can sometimes be this attitude of you got to be able to tough it out. If you admit yeah. weakness, then you're in some way letting the side down. Whereas it's always actually been quite a big thing for me in the books that I write about my child protection experience is that you burn out really quickly. It can be quite devastating on your emotional well-being. So including those, those, those passages in the book in which I actually recount pretty much word for word the conversation with my therapist, who, as you can see if when you read those passages, doesn't take my bullshit at all and really just bounces it back at me. Um, I just felt it was important to include those. No, and it really, for me, personally it like really solidified the whole story like every aspect of it what you were dealing with outside of the Gregory story because like I said like I just went back through the book and picked out the mm. ghost bits for one yeah. <laughs> but um like was it ever like frustrating for you dealing with this therapist who was like that almost just trained to do to face the facts you know what I mean um, I, I'm still actually seeing that therapist. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think she's she's become a really important sort of support for me because I still do child protection and social care work now on a consultancy basis. Uh, I don't do it full time anymore. I now teach people to do it. And it is okay. absolutely true what they say. Those who can do and those who can't teach. I now mostly teach. 
Um, I still do it on a consultancy basis. And I, I think having somebody who is going to reflect back at you the, the barriers that you put up. And I always say that when I'm doing child protection, there, there's lots of, all of us have lots of different versions of ourselves, okay? And the version that I am when I'm doing child protection isn't always a version of me that I like. Because you gotta make tough decisions. You have to be quite nosy and interfering. I'm constantly kind of barging my way into people's lives. And if you think about it, you rock up with a child protection worker, a social worker rocks up at somebody's door and knocks on the door. You're not there to bring good news. You're yeah. there to tell them that they have in some way failed in their responsibility towards their, their family, more than likely their children. That's a tough position to be in. They don't like the fact that you're there. So you're often getting a huge amount of hostility, a huge amount of negativity. And you're also dealing with people always in extremis. And to do that, then you need to have you know, the, these barriers up. I often talk about the fact that a switch goes in my head and the filters come down. The firewalls come down and then I'm able to deal with whatever it is that I encounter. You're able to deal with it while you're there, but then you kind of come away and the filters go back up again and then the emotion hits you. And that's when you need to seek out the help of somebody who can listen and who can just bounce back. Okay, look, this is, this is really tough. This is horrible. This must have been really, really difficult for you. Um, you, you need to sit with this for a while. Hmm. And when you're confronting them with something like the story of Thomas and Gregory, which doesn't always necessarily fit the bounds of psychology or science or reality. Um, yeah, that, that could be difficult. I wanted her to kind of tell me, okay, this is real or this wasn't real. You're hallucinating this. This was an example of post-traumatic stress, literally grabbing you by the balls and shaking you. But in fact, her attitude was, well, look, what do you think happened? What do, what do you feel that means? What does that mean for you? I think you believe you saw something. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's the way therapy works. Um, it, it's what does it mean to you? How does that impact on you? For, I mean, Sigmund Freud very famously wrote, it actually doesn't matter whether a, a patient in therapy is actually telling the God's honest truth or not. What matters is whether they believe it. And I suppose in therapy, that's probably the most important thing. And that was more or less the answer that she gave you at the, at yeah. the end of it as well. Mm. So, right, let's, um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to, if you can hear noise, that's our cat just came in. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm a dog person. So luckily mine are in the other room. Uh, but, uh, if they were here, they'd be making their presence felt. So I yeah, feel you're fine. We've got one good cat and one troublemaker and it, the troublemaker just came in. His little demon. <laughs> but, um, so, Bear with me two seconds here. Max. Fire ahead. You're fine. He's just finishing his business. <laughs> um, so, like you mentioned before, Gregory and Thomas wasn't your first paranormal encounter. But no. on a personal level, like um, not just when dealing with kids and stuff, have you ever had, like, were you a believer before any of these? Like, did you ever have growing up paranormal i know you don't like that word that term yeah i mean I, I i don't i'm not even sure that i am necessarily a believer i'm somebody who has seen the way i always describe it is i've seen shit happen you know okay i've, I've seen i've seen weird things um and it, that's usually been within the bounds of of, of working with kids i have had a, some weird experiences outside of that um i mean a, a good example was i was um 
at one stage I was living in a house in the northeast of Ireland um, in a little village called Drumconrath, which is literally in the middle of nowhere. You're smiling. Do you know it? No, I think it's a it's the no, it's a past past Louth. It, it's it's very near Louth. Yeah, it's, it's okay. literally this little village in the middle of nowhere. You've got to go 10 miles in any direction to hit any major sized town. So there's okay. Nobber on one side, Kingscourt on another, RD on another, Carrick Cross on another. But you've got to go 10 miles to hit any of them. So it very much is in the middle of this little maze of roads. It's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful villages you've ever seen. But at one stage, uh, my family were renting a, a little, about a 200-year-old farmhouse. And I remember um, my wife and I just got back from a party one evening and uh, we were sitting upstairs um, talking and there was a flight of stairs running down just outside the, the door of the room that we were in. And we always used the back door. We'd given a key to the back door to get into the house. We never used the front door. We didn't have a key for the front door of the house. We always used the back door, which went into the kitchen. Okay. But while we were talking, we heard somebody putting a key into the front door and opening it steps coming in and somebody starting to come up the stairs now this is one o'clock in the morning as i said we don't have a key for the front door so who the hell is this so i immediately got up ran out of the room ran to the stairs and there's nobody there and the front door is closed now we both heard it both of us heard it and after that, started hearing some very odd noises constantly in the house. People, it's what sounded like people or something moving around up in the attic. So the landlord, we called him and got him to come. We reckon there must be birds or rats or something getting into the attic. He said there was absolutely nothing. It was totally sealed. Nobody could get in. And I found out later that the house had been renovated. and There had at one stage been a, a third floor to the house. Wow. And it sounded like we were hearing footsteps of people moving around up there. Uh, and I only found that out afterwards from an old guy down in the pub that there had one, one stage being the third floor, which had been removed and they built that roof over it. So outside of, of, of um, child protection work, that would be the only real sort of odd kind of paranormal thing. But within child protection, I worked in a house at one stage, a residential unit, which again had been built towards the end of the 19th century. And when I started working there, I was told that the house is haunted by um, a red lady and that various members of the staff team had seen her, but that it usually happened after something very emotional had happened in the house. So if emotion was high, somebody would see this, this red lady. And I remember one evening I had been up with one of the kids who'd been very, very, very upset. There was a, a court case going on. One of their parents had been sent to prison. They'd been having really bad dreams and um, couldn't sleep. And what we used to do when this would happen is because you couldn't really be in the room with them at night, um, you'd sit in the doorway. So I would have a chair and I would sit in the doorway out in the hallway so that the CCTV cameras could see me to make sure I wasn't doing anything inappropriate which is absolutely right and proper. Yeah. So I was sitting there and the, the, the kid had gone back to sleep and I was kind of sitting at the door in case they got upset again. And I was starting to nod off. And as I did, I was absolutely convinced I saw a glimpse of red going past me up the hallway. And again, I was convinced I woke up and couldn't see anyone. I thought maybe one of the other kids had gotten up out of bed. And um, the only place they could have gone was into the living room. So I got up and went into the living room and I, again, I'm absolutely sure, and I write about this in one of my books, 
that I walked into the room and saw this figure standing against the window. And as she turned around, it was kind of almost like the way I would describe it is if you can imagine a watercolor painting, but with the, all the watercolors running, it wow. just ran and then was gone. And uh, I, I was half asleep. Maybe I dreamed it. I don't know. Maybe I dreamed it. But that's that was another very strange experience I had. Another one. Do you have time for another one? Oh, uh, yeah. This is yeah. your show. Yeah. All the time in the world okay. here. The other one, the other one that really sticks with me is I, I worked with these two kids. Um, now, in, in the book, I, I, I don't go into that. They were the, the families from the traveling community in okay. Ireland. And um, the, it was these two little boys. And I was asked to work with them for a very short period of time. It was one of these very intense cases where I was given like a two week period to turn these kids around. And if I didn't, they were going to get taken into some sort of secure care facility because they were both extremely aggressive, very violent, but very young. One yeah. of them had been kicked out of preschool and the other one had been kicked out of like junior infants, like, you know, the first class in, in primary school. Now you've got to be bad to be expelled from junior infants. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. doesn't really happen. But that gives you a picture of how tough these kids were. Now, when I went to work with them, I was informed that their father had been a member of a criminal gang and he had just recently been shot, um, execution style, by either a rival gang or his own gang. I didn't ask. I was just told he, he, was, he was dead. His wife had been very devoted to him and hadn't told the two boys that their father was dead. So they didn't know. Daddy just apparently hadn't come home. And she was still laying a, a plate for him at dinner. A meal would be put out. His boots were still inside the front door. When I walked into the house, I remember the hallway was full of just pictures upon pictures upon pictures of the family. I remember describing it in the book. Going down the hall, it was like walking into an Egyptian pyramid you know, with all the hieroglyphics. Yeah. It felt like that. It was just dense pictures. And so you're being reflected back their life and him all the time. So I started talking to them about what was going on and why the behavior was so bad. And they informed me that their daddy was telling them to behave like this. And I said, okay, I said, so your dad told you this? Or he, they said, no, he's telling us. And so I said, okay, so you're, when are you seeing your dad? And they informed me that they would go down the back of the garden where there was this kind of raised ditch and they would see their daddy there. So, I did this little trick that they do in art therapy where you've got kids who are experiencing a similar type of pathology or neurosis. The wisdom is you separate them and you get them to maybe draw or make some sort of artistic representation of what it was that they were seeing. So I said, okay, I said, so we'll say Jimmy and Timmy. Jimmy, you go into one room and you draw what your daddy looks like when you see him down the back of the garden. Timmy, you go into the other room and draw. The two of them went off and separately and they came back and they had both drawn identical pictures, almost in the same colors. And the image that they drew kind of gave me chills because it looked like, you know, the face on Edvard Munch's The Scream, you know, that, oh, that, that painting. That's kind of what it looked like they were drawing, which sort of freaked me out a bit. Um, the mum was just refusing to engage with any of this. As far as she was concerned, she was almost happy that the kids were still seeing their dad. It was like he hadn't gone away. And I had this experience where one, eve one evening I was there in the house and I remember the kids were just tired that day and they didn't want to do any play activities. So we were just watching TV. 
And suddenly it felt like it suddenly got really dark. And I remember I looked out the window thinking the clouds must have come over, but it was like it was sunny outside. But inside the house, it was like all of the light seemed to have been sapped out and it got quite cold. And then suddenly the TV went off. Hmm. So I figured, and, and not just the TV, the light, everything in the house, because I turned on the lights inside. So I figured the trip switch must have gone. So I went into the utility room and I, I, the, the, the fuse box was up over the, the back door. And so I got up on a chair and as I was up on the chair reaching for the, the trip switch, I heard the door to the utility room opening behind me. I thought it was the kid, one, either one of the kids or their mom. And so I just said, you know, hi, I'm just going to do this. Everything's fine. You know, I've got to get the TV back on in a second. And the next thing, the chair gets pulled out from under me, fall on my ass, bang my head, black out for a moment. I come back around and I'm in the utility room on my own. And I'm hearing this scratching noise at the window. Now, I remember that there are trees in the back garden. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it must be a tree that's brushing up against the glass of the window. But it's, it's the, the sound is getting into my head. It's starting to really bother me. It's this kind of loud, it's like it's something scratching to get in. I go to the door of the utility room, I can't open it. It won't open. I go to the back door, it won't open either. Now I'm starting to freak out. I'm in pain, I'm annoyed, I'm a little bit scared. I'm banging on the door, pulling at the door to open the utility room. The next thing, the door gets pulled in the other direction and I'm pulling it the wrong way. It opens out rather than in, and it's, it's the, the boy's mother. I'm furious. I'm saying, like, what the fuck is going on? I'm not here to be a punch bag. Why would you do that to me? I'm trying to get your electricity back on. And I, I, I literally go out through the kitchen, out into the garden, because it's like I need air. I walk around to the window of the utility room where I'm convinced I've heard this branch scraping. The nearest branch is about 10 feet away from the window. I don't know what I was hearing. Um, eventually what I decided to do in, with that case was actually just bring the boys to the graveyard where their father was buried. Because they'd never been confronted with this truth. The mother really didn't want me to do it. But um, I just said to her, like, these kids are gonna get taken into care if there's some change in their behavior doesn't occur. So I brought them, we had a kind of a, like a, a candle ceremony and from that moment on their behavior altered and any kind of strange things going on in the house kind of stopped um it's one of those situations where i believe that whatever was happening the boys were manifesting it whatever energy they had from their grief or from their uncertainty i think they they were causing it to happen and and there is a there is some psychological basis for that there have been studies done showing that you know children in heightened states of anxiety you know can Have whether they're doing it physically therapy. or whether they're doing it on some emotional level i don't know but certainly i think i was picking up on their feelings i was think i was picking up on their anxiety and their stress and their trauma which is very like i think what was going on in the situation with gregory and thomas yeah well definitely that's that's very interesting we recently covered uh a big poltergeist case and they kind of you know as they're trying to explain it that's something that they've touched on very much so especially with the you know they always say like kids going through um puberty or just some sort of trauma and this energy seems to follow them almost but i personally have experienced people they weren't teenagers or, or kids 
but they could carry this energy. And like you're saying, like you could feel rooms darken when they walked in. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember there's a, one of my other books and um, it, it's a, I, I did a, a series recently for audible called stories from the margins, um, which is more sort of true crime, but it kind of crosses over into the child protection stuff as well. But um, the second book in that series was called the bad place looks at a um, basically a people trafficking ring um, that, that crossed over into a case that I was working with. And there was a guy who I met a couple of times as part of that, who people just used to refer to as the dark man. And he was kind of like this kind of um, enforcer within the gang. And when you met him, he was like one of the most terrifying individuals I've ever encountered. There was nothing that physically frightening about him. He wasn't that big. He wasn't particularly ugly. Um, he wasn't even that physically domineering, but he exuded this ferocity that just made you know you just did not want to fuck with him on any level. He was terrifying, you know? And I've met a couple of people like that. I mentioned another guy that I met, met in, a, in one of my books um, called The Boy They Tried to Hide. Um, again, I, I end up doing some work with a, a kid of a, a guy who's involved in a, an Eastern European gang. And I meet the enforcer for that guy who in the book I call Caesar. And again, I walked into this basement room where I had to meet the father of this boy. And this guy, Caesar, was standing behind him. He was like his enforcer, his bodyguard. The minute I walked into the room, I could feel the energy of, of what this guy was. And I, I'm a big believer that, 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 that some people just have an aura that if you're in any way empathic, you'll, you'll pick up on it. And some people are very emotionally intelligent. And I think that when you've got that, when you, when, when you are when you're aware of, of, of the, I suppose, the emotional world that we all live in, I think you can tune into that frequency. Yeah, and it can be a big drain on people as, as well. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, so I'm going to get Dulce to ask some of the questions because <laughs> otherwise I'll just sit here talking all day long. <laughs> um, I don't mind. <laughs> I know you don't, but like half of our listeners or most of our listeners are like, oh, we love when Dulce is the one. <laughs> that Go for Dulce. Yeah. Give um, the people what they want. <laughs> <laughs> so we just have a couple more questions and, and then we'll let go you go. Uh, I'll ask this question because I think um, Adam forgot it. Probably. And he didn't write it. I'm seeing that he didn't write it down. Oh, okay. But it seemed very important for him. <laughs> I know in your stories, you use nicknames for people. Mm -hmm. So was the nickname Balsack a nickname for a nickname? <laughs> or was that his real nickname? <laughs> that was not his real nickname. Um, his real nickname was something not dissimilar. Okay. To, uh, let's just say an aspect of the anatomy um, quite near to that one. Um, but I actually did at one stage work with a, a guy who was involved in a gang who was referred to by his friends as Ballsack. And I will say he's so physically different to the guy that I described the two, they'll never get mixed up with each other. And actually, I've met him since that book came out and he thought it was hilarious that, um, okay. that I had name checked him. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. And he got, he got that nickname, actually. And uh, he won't mind my divulging this because he tells his story himself at dinner parties. Um, he got that nickname due to a um, something about Mary moment um, in his, during his school days. That's where the nickname right. came from. 
All right. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know how to approach this because you don't like the word paranormal. Go um, for it. Just, do you know what? I'm not, I'm, I'm not that sensitive, Dulce, so ask me. Okay. Um, yeah, Adam tells me that Irish as a people normally don't offend easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're pretty thick-skinned. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about Thomas. Sure. Um, I have some questions about Thomas. I, we were actually, I think we stopped recording uh, the second part uh, when I started sort of throwing, purging all these ideas of what Thomas could have been or mm. what was left of Thomas, because obviously he wasn't the little boy anymore. Yeah. Because he's something else now. Mm. I feel mm. like he is. Um, but do you think that maybe it what stuck out what really made an impression on me was the last scene probably as much as adam where when, when you, thomas gets dragged back through the mm, trees where he gets dragged back into the trees and when you were hearing the crying mm. right so i also believe in in like i feel like i think what do they call it the stone tape or yeah, stone tape theory. Stone tape theory, but I yeah. call it the big stink. Whereas, <laughs> like, there's like a stench. Like, if something smells bad enough, it'll start permeating the walls or permeating the area that it's sure. in. Sure, sure. And I was wondering if what pulled Thomas back was maybe the. It what was it the, this forest that acted like a vacuum, after it encountered so many tragedies, the crying maybe do you think maybe it had to do with the tragedy of the mother or maybe it was like a past what 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 other histories did this forest have and also um do you think maybe thomas is trapped here in the forest still or do you think he maybe transitioned to another another plane or maybe um that's a really but there's a lot of questions in that. Um, <laughs> I, I can tell you. Uh, okay, here, here, here's an exclusive for you then. Okay, I've never divulged this before. Um, the, I mean, the all, the, the family eventually ha had to leave because Thomas didn't. They they eventually okay. had to actually move away from the area. That their problems continued. Um, after the uh, after the events I describe in the uh, in the book, uh, I, I whatever Thomas had, I think what what you've actually described there, Dulce, is actually quite quite I think quite an articulate analysis of the situation. Whatever that was, whatever energy, whatever memory, whatever presence was there, did seem to be trapped in that area, and. It's interesting you were talking about one of your listeners was so emotionally responded so emotionally to Gregory and his pain and his isolation and his loneliness. And I think that that's what Thomas was responding to as well, that these two lonely personalities found one another. And I, I often felt that because of my training, when I encountered that, I just treated him like another kid. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that I was scared out of my wits during that encounter, 
um, my attitude was, well, you know, look, whoever this was, he needed help. And that was just my instinct was to offer that. And I describe in the book that when he's confronted with actually someone who cares and somebody who wants to do something, I actually saw almost a reaction. And that's when he gets dragged back. And it's almost like, I think, obviously there was nothing that I could have done because he wasn't a kid and I couldn't take him and sit him down and give him some, you know, milk and cookies or whatever. That wasn't going to happen. So what could I actually do? And I think that the, that honest interaction of reaching out and saying, I want to help you and him, some part of whatever he was realizing that couldn't happen. I've often felt that that's what dragged him back, that that sense of connection, which could never be, was too much. And it was just he was then torn back into wherever it was that he he lived, whether that was some element of the, the, the forest past or some other time or some other level of, of existence. I don't know. But yeah, he was taken back to wherever he was when he wasn't wandering in the in the woods. And I think it was, yeah, just that knowing that that connection could never be and knowing that it was too late to help knowing that whatever had happened had happened and that that couldn't be undone. And that's actually an essential truth in social care and child protection anyway. When bad stuff happens to kids, you can't make it unhappen. You can't take it away. Some kid has been abused or neglected. You can't remove that. They have to learn to integrate that into themselves and move on with that as part of their history. And to some extent, Thomas was a a bitter reminder of that, that what had happened to him. In a way, what I wanted to do with the book was create a a bit a testament to this kid whom nobody had helped. Yeah. And no one really believed him. And because no, exactly, the the Mm -hmm. boy they tried to hide. Mm -hmm. The community, the society, the church, his mother, yeah, nobody wanted to acknowledge that he was actually there at all. Because he was a, a symptom, if you like, of an aspect of Irish society, which back then nobody wanted to look at. Yeah. We've, we've had a situation in Ireland just, re, you know, just the last few days where they exhumed, you know, the body of a child who was part of this terrible scandal in the 1980s. Um, and I, again, symbolically, I think that that's interesting. We are now digging a lot of this back up. We're now in Ireland that acknowledges our industrial schools and our Magdalen laundries you know, and the clerical abuse in the church and all of these awful things, the way poor people were treated uh, because, you know, Ireland was a place riddled with social class. And Thomas is a remnant of that as well. And I wanted in this story to acknowledge, yeah, he did exist. Yes, he was wronged. Yes, it's awful. But here he is. Here you go. And I actually, I, I mean, I would hope, and this is going to sound terribly arrogant, but I would hope that wherever he is that maybe the fact that so many people have responded so positively to this story and have kind of wanted to acknowledge him that in a way if that gives him some degree of peace well then i'm very happy yeah absolutely because quick i don't say writing more questions here but i was saying all throughout the book even when when we're talking about during the 80s when thomas was alive how the public were or how um, Father Malone and stuff even never really saw him. I said the image of Thomas that I personally had was just the shape of a child with TV static. It's like he, even when he was alive, yeah. he was as much of a ghost as he was 
in the story. Like, so I think just shame really wasn't it, especially in the eighties and the nineties as well, but it was shame that kept him hidden like that. Well, Adam, I mean, you grew up in Ireland. Um, you know all about Catholic guilt. Uh, that's Absolutely. what we, it is. It is literally beaten into us, you know, that uh, anything that, ref, you know, relates to, you know, sex or reproduction or the human anatomy, this is something that you're supposed to brush under the carpet and pretend wasn't there. And yeah. you don't talk about it and you don't acknowledge it. And particularly in the 1980s, you know, I mean, I, I remember being in, in, in church at Sunday mass, you know, mid 1980s and the priest literally going puce red on the altar over the scandal of unmarried mothers in our community. You know, these women that had gotten pregnant outside of marriage. And I remember him actually standing up and asking any unmarried, because he was pointing them out in the congregation, any of them, they were to get up and leave. They were to literally in shame to get up and walk out. And I remember a bunch of them did. They stood up and, and you know, very quietly made their way down the aisle outside. And I remember being so proud of the fact that my mother stood up and walked out with them. She said her attitude was if, he, if they weren't good enough to be in the church, then neither was she. And she got up and she walked in with them. I remember being so proud at the time. Also a bit embarrassed, but quite proud. Also, <laughs> you know? um, but that's the world that Thomas is from. Yeah, and, and I, that's why the people didn't want didn't want to see him. But that image actually of the, a child who is just static, who people are not tuned in enough to see him. I think that's a, a really good image of him, actually. Yeah, and then even like, so I was born in 1991, but uh, my mom was 17 and unmarried at the time. So we were lucky, like we we're from a really nice family and they didn't send yeah. us off to the laundries or anything like that. But they were still there in 1991. I think 1994, 1997 was the last one. I think 1996, um, the last one closed no. down. So right in the middle okay. of that, yeah, 96. And it was in, in Dublin, yeah. I mean, I actually taught in a college in Waterford that had been a Magdalene laundry. I remember the first day going there to work and meeting this elderly lady walking around in the grounds. And um, I just thought that she was a neighbor or something. I went up to introduce myself. And would you believe, and this is no lie, she introduced herself to me by her number. Jesus. The number she'd been given. And I realized that what, there was a few of them that were still alive and they'd moved into a house just above where the college was. And she still introduced herself to me by her number. She called herself and then gave me her name. But that was the first thing that came to her head. That's, Ireland. That's <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, I mean, that's why I, and I try not to get into it on the podcast in particular, because it's just led me to, I have such a hatred for, not hatred's the wrong word, but I'm so, such a strong dislike for organized religion. Very passionate dislike. Because of that, like, yeah, like I'm, <laughs> A big spiritual person. I love. Oh, brother! I'm the exact. I'm the exact same. I'm the exact same. Yeah. Very spiritual, uh, but organized religion leaves me cold and makes me very angry. Exactly. And because of the fact that I'm still actively involved in social care, we can never forget that that's where social care in Ireland came from. When I started working in the area, an awful lot of people that I worked alongside were still employed by the church. I was dealing with social workers that were nuns on a regular basis. They'd never been trained, but because of the fact that they wore the habit, it was assumed they could do the job. Of course, and you were yeah. still dealing with all of that. I mean, it was a crazy, crazy world. 
So this is where poor Thomas came from, basically. This is where Thomas came from. This is his, this is the legacy. This is the legacy that yeah. created him. Yeah. A casualty yeah. of the times. Yes, yeah. for sure, for sure. So I'm really glad. Well, first of all, I hope, um, we, obviously we don't understand, or hopefully we will one day, um, what kind of plane of existence Thomas is living in or what what he is now because he's very much there maybe just mm. an echo of what he used to be um but if he if he is an intelligent uh energy then hopefully he can feel the effects of the publishing of this book well that's so, that's my hope that is my hope yeah. if, that, if that is something he's capable of it would be one yeah I, th I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that you think him getting pulled back into the forest was almost like a re was his reaction to something that couldn't happen. Mm. And if it is, then I wonder if maybe a part of him or his entirety really is an impression, an, an, a, a, an impression of what he was when he was alive. Because if it's not an intelligent impression, then it's like like that experience that you had at the house where some the same thing the routines were happening where the key went into the door someone went upstairs into mm -hmm. the third floor mm. the repetition like a, residual. a residual thing and if thomas is a residual thing you can't teach a residual thing something new because no. it's not intelligent it's just an impression so i yeah. wonder if that's almost like yeah, it's a tough one. I suppose the way I rationalized it was, you know, if, if there was this aspect of a child who's been living in the woods for years and years and years, largely alone, looking for companionship of some kind, drawn to other kids, like he was with the, with, with the travelers in the woods, you know, he was yeah. approaching the children. Um, he approaches Gregory. He's looking for Gregory to go out and play. Um, what, what struck me was that because, you know, that this is a, a child who is without love. He's without kindness. He, he's, he's isolated. He's probably frightened. Yeah. And, and then somebody extends kindness. And the shock of that or the memory of what he might once have experienced was so painful. He, he ran away. Yeah. That was sort of how I understood it. That, that, that's what I was seeing. Now, I, I don't know how accurate that is, but that, that, that's what well, it seemed like to me. Hopefully we'll know one day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully we'll be, you know, the, the secrets of the universe will reveal themselves to us. Well, that would be wonderful. Would be <laughs> but um, I want, I'm so glad you said, because when Adam ended off the story, the, the second half, uh, I, I like it, it ended off with, well, and they didn't experience anything afterwards mm. after the candle ceremony and i was like well wait a minute what's the diff what was the difference between the banishment ritual that the traveler's grandma had tried to do and the candle ceremony that you guys did because but and how how was one effective when the other one is was yeah it? You see, the, the, the joy of publishing is that you've got editors who like to have a nice time, <laughs> um, even when it's nonfiction. And would you believe, I mean, one of the 
one was, I got some wonderful reviews for that book, but one that was actually a really good review still turned around and said that they weren't terribly happy with the ending, that they felt okay. that it was all just... Uh, too so, happy. <laughs> yeah, there, and, and it's something that I, I would try to do that a, a lot. My editors felt that the rest of the book was too downbeat. Right. That, uh, the other stories in the book, none of them ended well, that we needed to have one that had a kind of a nice tidy ending. So we changed that. In actuality, yeah, he, he didn't go away and eventually the family had to move. So what happened in the country. Sorry? What happened in the after party? <laughs> um, in the after, oh, uh, uh, well, when we were, when we actually did the ceremony, do you think? Yeah, like afterwards, like what Like what, what kind what of continued? activity kept up? Oh, yeah. I beg your pardon. Okay. Um, yeah, he just um, continued to be, the, the, the mom was telling me that she, they continued to see him kind of, uh, you know, in the evenings, kind of standing in the woods, kind of beyond the property um that uh that her son would still hear him calling at night Jesus. Wow. um he didn't get it didn't try and come into the house anymore which he had done previously okay but was still making his presence felt in the area wow it's just it, it was to be honest i've watched an awful lot of scary movies heard i couldn't tell you how many scary stories but this one really Shocked. like i was sitting in this room in the corner reading it and like the hairs on the back of my neck were going up and for that to happen was such a nice fit like that hasn't happened to me since in years oh thank you um but my my last question and then we actually will let you go is did gregory and angus go on and finish their school like did they they finish their leaving cert or whatever equivalent they could um they, they did uh not not in ireland they okay. family eventually moved out of the country and uh i, I won't divulge where but yeah. um they, they, they did leave. Um, the the mum had a job, which I don't discuss in the book, but she had a job which, which travelled and which she could do pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah. So they were able to move. Um, they did. I mean, they went on. When I published the book, um, I, I got in contact with the family and they were very, very happy for me. But what I, I obviously it was before I published it, when I was going to write the book. I wanted to write the story. So I contacted them to say, is this OK? And they were very happy for me to do so as long as I changed certain details to make sure that they weren't going to be identified. And um, yeah, the boys were both doing very well. Didn't have any particularly traumatic memories of, of any of it. It was just kind of something that had happened. And for Gregory, Thomas was just a kid. Still, oh, thank after. God. <laughs> just a kid. He was just a, a friend that he had had, and uh, a friend who had some problems. And he 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 wasn't he wasn't that traumatized or that upset by the memory. His mum, on the other hand, uh, was uh, you know she she certainly and I mean the conversation that we had was you know what the fuck happened, yeah. what was that? But she was very happy for me to write the story and um, has been quite, again, quite tickled at the fact that it's gotten such a response. You'll be That's surprised amazing. to know that my favorite character out of or character or my favorite person out of this whole thing was actually the travelers, the traveler kid that you talked to that you let pet <laughs> Millie. He was brilliant, wasn't he? He was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a brilliant. He was a great character, an absolutely great character. Yeah, and it's funny because that day I actually had quite good fun writing that scene because in actuality I mean I hadn't slept when I met him I was exhausted I was really wondering what the hell was going on and um it's funny every now and again you meet these kids and they're just so full of positivity and personality and yeah. just gumption and he gave me a bit of a lift actually that day kind of made me think well you know actually oh you know it'll be okay we'll work our way through this uh 
but yeah, he was he was he was quite kind. I love I love the travelers anyway. I have to say I'm I'm a big fan of traveling culture, and I think it's a great pity that probably with the way the Irish government has, has treated them, there you know my fear is that we will in Ireland we will lose that culture if we're not careful and if it isn't nurtured. Yeah, know? probably not in the the too distant future as well. But the the way they're going, but for for me it was really nice to actually have that to be able to describe that scene and um just give people a little bit of information about the traveling community as well. Like, and don't get me wrong. I went on to the, I think it was Irish travelers movement.com mm. and made sure that I got everything properly. And because so many people just don't know that they even exist. Yeah. Um, or, or think, or have a very one dimensional view of them. Uh, yeah. You know, there a lot of people, I mean, like I, I teach people to be social care workers. And when, when we cover the traveling community, in social studies, a lot of the time people are learning for the first time that these guys have their own languages, that, you know, they have a history going back to the 8th century in Ireland, you know, that they've been around for so long, that they, you know, they have their own origin myths and origin stories. And I mean, I grew up in Wexford, so I mean, an awful lot of the great wow. traveling Hillen Pipers come from there. And I'm very lucky to have been, I've played music with the Pecker Dunn. I've, um, I've been very, very lucky to have um, grown up knowing them. Uh, but again, I came from a family, again, where my mother was, was fascinated by them and encouraged us to get to know them when they were in our area. But, I mean, they've been treated like second-class citizens for so long. It's shameful. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. it is. But it, it was great, though, to be able to bring them out. And we were just saying, like, I don't know any of their stories or traditions, really, personally. Yeah. And how amazing it would be to get even one book, just, you know, with some of their stories and yeah that way you know yeah, you see the problem is a lot that because of the fact that they are a an oral tradition yeah um those books aren't there and what you do get is you will get books written by anthropologists and sociologists mm. giving a you know a non-traveler's version of what it is that they're about which is an awful pity i mean i've tried to represent them as accurately as i can that book that i was talking about earlier the the audiobook and um, the bad mm. place um, has a large section uh, in which I, I work with the travelers to try and address some of the issues that this trafficking gang are doing. And the travelers are a, an amazing help and a huge support to me. And so I'm able to kind of dip into them a little bit there. And I, I visit them in another one of my books, Hush Little Baby, which again has a, a, a lengthy section in, in which I'm working with, with the traveling community in that. So they've kind of been a feature of my life and my work for a long time. But obviously I'm not a traveler. So I hope yeah. I do them justice, but it would be wonderful. And of course, there are now, there's a very good friend of mine um, who's a, a traveler and a writer. And, um, you know, she's college educated, you know, she's been to university and uh, she's a member of the Senate in Ireland. She's an Irish senator. And uh, I'm, we're starting to see now some, some travelers going on and, and actually, um, you know, taking up the positions that they should have in Irish society. And yeah. so, Maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see a book like that soon. I hope we do. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, right. And then before you go, yeah, because we've taken up enough of your time. That this was, this was great. Um, tell us all about your new book. Okay. Thank you very much. I have a, a book which I have just published with um, Book Tour, who are an amazing um, online and ebook uh, publishing company. So it's a digital digital print. So you'll get it on Amazon, Kobo, Apple Books, and Google Books, all of those platforms online. It's called Bring Her Home, and it's the first novel in a new crime series featuring a, a team of investigators 
Um, Jesse Boyle is a criminal behaviorist who has uh, spent the last 20 years working for the Violent Crimes Unit of the London Met. Uh, a case she's working goes really badly wrong and her partner ends up getting abducted by a serial killer and rather horribly murdered. And grief stricken, she flees back home to Ireland. She's originally from Ringsend in Dublin and she goes home intending to give up policing for good. Uh, but when she arrives back into Ireland, she is um, it receives a knock on her hotel room door and it's her old friend, a lady called Dawn Wilson, who is the newly appointed police commissioner of Ireland. And she wants Jessie to come back into the fold to help her solve a case of um, the daughter of a former Taoiseach, Ireland's prime minister, the Taoiseach. Um, a daughter of a former Taoiseach has been abducted. Uh, there's no ransom demand. There's no clues. There's no witnesses whatsoever. Just a videotape has been delivered to police HQ in which a shadowy figure informs them that this young woman is going to be murdered in 10 days time unless they can rescue her. And 10 days time is the eve of Samhain, basically the Celtic version of Halloween. And so Jessie and her new team, um, Seamus Kennelly is a newly appointed decorated detective who's gonna be working alongside her. And there's an, uh, a tech expert and historian called Terry. Uh, Terry's grew up in care. She's very emotionally damaged, but very brilliant young woman who um, is able to kind of dig into kind of, you know, the history of the families and that. And they start working on this case and they discover that this particular person who abducted this young woman has actually been abducting women on the west coast of Ireland for the last 40 years. And that all of the abductions are, they correlate to ancient Celtic myths. And they start to think that this guy believes that he is the reincarnation of Balor, this ancient Irish demon. And that in fact, what, you know, that if, um, if they don't rescue this girl in time, he's going to sacrifice her to kind of bring about the Celtic version of the end of days. So the clock is ticking, everything's going against them. Uh, they fall foul of a gang that is um, operating in the area and whose territory they have to cross into to try and rescue her. And uh, the book ends up as a climax in the caves beneath the McGillicuddy's Reeks, where they have to go in to try and rescue everybody or the whole thing falls asunder. So Bring Her Home, it's the first book in the Boyle and Canelli series. Uh, second book is uh, going to be coming out in January. As I said, it's number one in the uh, folklore, so folk horror charts at the moment on Amazon. Number four in Irish crime. And it's in the <laughs> top five in a whole lot of other charts. I don't even know what they are, but it's doing really well and I'm delighted. And uh, I want everybody to go out and get a copy, please. Absolutely. Get two. You never know when the first one will wear out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's brilliant. I'm actually looking so much forward to, to getting it and your other ones um, yeah. as well, just because. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, Boyle and Kennelly, book one, Bring Her Home, is actually my, my 19th book. Um, there's nine, the, the series that The Boy That Tried to Hide belongs to, there's nine books in that series. Uh, there's another three in Stories from the Margin. That's audiobook only with Amazon. Uh, but those did really well as well. They were all number one bestsellers too. But they kind of continue on that child protection series. And I'm actually hoping that um, with my new publisher's book, Couture, that we're going to be returning to that series of stories as well that I'll be able to tell some more because I have some more stories I'd like to tell. And people are constantly asking me when I'm going to be going back to that series too. So, um, and when, when lovely people like you express such an interest in it and um, are so passionate about it, it's wonderful. So thank you for having me on and um, allowing me to bore you for the last hour or so or however long we've been talking. No, oh, you've, not, not you've been all, so yeah. kind. Um, and 
I, I love the way you articulate things. It's, I love oh, the way you speak. thank you so speak. much. <laughs> so it, it obviously comes naturally because you're a writer. But, um, and I know like your works are like your babies, you know, they are. and you're not supposed to have a favorite, but do you have a favorite? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I, I'm very fond of, of The Boy They Tried to Hide because it's, it's obviously it's a book that's been very good to me. Um, the story that I told you about the two little boys and their dad who'd been murdered belongs to the second book that I published, which is called Crying in the Dark. And for a long time, that was my favorite. There's a couple of stories in that that I'm very, very fond of, actually more because they deal with kids that I worked with who really resonated with me. Um, I, I, I won't go into details because some of them are quite grim, but uh, I really do love that book. The book of mine that's probably sold better than all the others though, um, and it, went, it was number five on the London Times bestseller list for quite a long time, is a book called The Girl Who Couldn't Smile. And it's about a year that I spent working in a creche for kids with special needs. That, in that book, nobody gets abused. Uh, nobody gets neglected. It's quite upbeat and, and quite cheerful, actually. And people seem to absolutely love it. So I'm, I'm quite fond of that one as well. Um, in terms of my, of my fiction, um, I wrote a, a crime series about a criminologist called David Donegan. And I wrote four books in that series. And um, there's a character in that called Miley, who's a young man who's living with Down syndrome who becomes Donegan's best friend and he's like the emotional heart of the series and people really love him as well and he's a really empowered really positive character for people living with special needs and I really love those books too um, so it's an impossible question to answer don't say I'm afraid I, keep going. I love them all bring her home I mean that's my baby at the moment and that's, that's the one, one. bring her home because okay. people are being so positive about that I've probably got the best reviews of my career so far or bring her home it's got a massive outpouring of support so um yeah it's great and i mean look i feel so lucky to be able to do what i do um i'm in the lucky position where you know people want to read my books where i'm a guy who loves telling stories and i've got the opportunity to do that and um you know i've got brilliant publishers who help me to do it and i get people like you who want to you know sit around and talk about it and share it with other people and i'm blessed i genuinely feel i'm blessed so I'm a lucky well, guy. No, we'll, we really, really do appreciate having you on because, to be honest, I wasn't expecting it when like, I reached out to you. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'll always say this. If, if, when someone takes the time to write to us, to speak to us, it's an honor because mm -hmm. I know how... I know how valuable time is. You're never going to get that time back. I'm sorry, Shane. But, <laughs> so, but you decided to invest that time with us. So for that, we thank you. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. I mean, I, I, I listen to podcasts all the time myself anyway, and I think it's a brilliant medium. And, you know, I, I grew up in a house where my dad worked on the radio. I presented radio oh, wow. shows. And the idea of podcast kind of radio on demand, I think, is absolutely brilliant. And I mean, when 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 Adam reached out, it was just it was a no brainer for me. You know, I, I went away and listened to some of your shows and I thought, yeah, I want I want, want to be involved in this. So really, really pleased to have met both of you. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll get to talk again in the future. Shane. Yeah. I'd love that. Absolutely love that. All right, well, look, go and enjoy the rest of your evening because well, it's late there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, thanks, thanks a million, million, guys. Absolute Cheers. pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. And we just recorded our intro to the interview. And so now this is really awkward because we're pretending like this is our... <laughs> 
But no, again, we cannot say enough how much we enjoyed talking that interview. to him. Yeah. yeah, that was it was just so nice. Mm -hmm. I feel like it would be really cool if you covered another one of his books. Well, that's what I was getting at. Like, I will definitely be getting more of his books in mm -hmm. the future. I'm going to try and aim because he has a fictional series and a non-fictional kind of series. Yeah. So I will definitely be picking and choosing from the the ones I want to read for myself at yeah. home and the ones that I want to read for research for this. Yeah, I think in this case, it's... I mean, with a lot of our stories, it's a fact is definitely stranger than fiction and that nothing... It nothing speaks more true to that statement than this story. I just think it's, I think it's funny how it's like he has fiction and nonfiction, but this one is nonfiction and it reads like a fiction. Yeah, I think it's just that's amazing. It's a testament to his writing as well because, yeah, <clears throat> like obviously he's a fucking great author, so that's why he is a great author mm -hmm. because he can tell such a great story, mm -hmm. um, and as well. I cannot say this enough in about the boy they tried to hide in particular. Thomas and Gregory's story is just one aspect mm -hmm. of that of that whole book. So yeah, definitely check it out for yourself. And his new book, Bring Her Home. He said it's available. It's an ebook, so you literally have no excuses. If you want to go and get it, all you have to do <laughs> is use your phone. Press your but press the buttons. Yeah, and also because I'm a big paper guy, but I actually read the boy they tried to hide on our Kindle too. Um, so yeah, all of his works is up there. All of his works are up there. <laughs> and he also has, um, audible exclusives too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we hope you enjoyed hearing me fangirling over <laughs> Shane's books while yeah. Jose asked actual good questions. <laughs> you were, you were fangirling pretty hard. Yeah. Cause there was so much that I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen next week in terms of an episode. I have nothing planned. Yeah, he's just going to ride out this high for a while. Yeah. But guys, if you enjoyed that, like Dulce just enjoyed that coffee, <laughs> make sure to subscribe. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make yeah. sure it's rate and review. Follow us on Spotify. On Spotify. Don't follow me in real life. I will call the police. <laughs> uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. If you want more content, always you can sign up to our Patreon for it. As little as $2 a month. And uh, yeah, we already have, I think, like 40-something things on there. Videos, smaller episodes and stuff like that. Yeah. So get on it. Um, that's what he said. Yeah, and I think that's it. Yep. Follow us on Instagram. That's it. Don't forget to go and buy Shane's book, Bring Her Home. Yeah. By Shane Dunphy. And yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Father Malone then said, I have a son, Post Malone, <laughs> and, a, and a daughter. Her name is Water Malone. <laughs> <laughs> the 70s were a hell of a time, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay, I said 10 Hail Marys and then our father. All is forgiven.